greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Keep your friends close, but your enemies close. There are no two words in the English language more harmful than good job. Welcome to the Make Remake Literary License Podcast episode with Keith Shago and co-hosts Vicky Ray and Steve Templeman, discussing the original film and the remake, looking at what was improved upon, where they went wrong, and whether anything lives up to the original. Don't forget to have your say by commenting or sharing links, or just follow us below. Now on with the show! in the stars now we just look down and worry about our place in the dirt hate is bad life's too short to be pissed off all the time it's just not worth it life see in this world there's two kinds of people my friend those with loaded guns I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Hello, welcome to the Jolly Podcast. Make Remake. We'll be discussing two films, one of the original and the remake. And today's program will be about King Kong from 1933 and King Kong from 2005. And before we get started, let's find out who's with us. We got Vicky Ray with us. Hello, Vicky. Hello, everyone. And Joe Randazzo. Hello, Joe. Hey, everyone. And before we get started, let's find out what we've been up to. Starting with you, Vix. What have you been up to? Absolutely nothing. It's been 100 degrees for like ever. No, I'm actually not doing really a whole lot. Uh, Masters in school, so I'm kind of feeling abandoned and unloved right now. So I'm going to have to find another reason to live during the school year. The uh, other than that, I'm, I'm, just, I'm still just doing my little things that I do around home and in the area. But uh, what was I watching? Okay, I finished Sandman. Is that only going to be a one season deal? Or does that look like they set up for a second season? Multiple seasons, depending on how this one goes. But I imagine I'll probably agree. I was very impressed. I loved it. Not sure. I know you watched it. Not sure if Joe caught any of it. But I thought I did not see it. Excellent. I loved everything about it. I hope they don't change nothing. Absolutely nothing. Right down to where the angels don't have a sex. Like they're like asexual because really angels in all mythology aren't male or female. They're really like asexual beings, you know? And I love, and I can't remember her name. She, she played the, the large female, the tall woman. She's a beautifully tall woman. She's the Amazonian. She was in um, uh, Game of Thrones as the, the love interest for Jamie later on. Yeah. She was in it. I recognized her right off the bat. Perfect, perfect casting for that part in it. I just loved it. I thought it was excellent. And what else did I watch? Okay, I did finish Resident Evil. Oh, yeah, I watched They, Them, and I watched Prey. Prey, I cannot sing enough praises. I for. love Prey. And uh, everybody is singing its praises, whether you 
love or hate the Predator franchise, everybody is loving this because it was so badass. I mean, it was just nice to see a small Indian woman kick the shit out of the Predator. I mean, all yeah. the men couldn't do it, but she did. Nobody listened to her, you know? I, I actually enjoy Prey so much that it made me go back and rewatch Predator 2 and Predators. Predators I had never seen, actually, because I, I just heard it was terrible. And I went back and watched it. I'm like, this actually isn't bad at all. So with Adrian Brody and Lawrence Fishburne that came out like 10, 10 years or so ago. Uh, so, yeah, I was like, actually, I enjoyed that one. I enjoyed that one quite a bit, too. Predator versus Alien. Loved it. I was loved. It's awfully stupid, but I loved it. I don't care because you got the two worst of the worst fighting each other. I mean, it's so funny. I just loved it. So I don't care what anybody it's, says. I liked it. It speaks to how good Prey is, though, that I, I was like, you know what? I got to go back and give the other Predator sequels a shot again. And I, I wasn't disappointed with those two. Well, it was like, actually a good, it was actually well set up. You're totally vested in this, at least this one character and the dog should get best supporting actor. I, I, <laughs> I actually read that the, uh, <clears throat> the dog actually wasn't supposed to be in as much of the movie as he was, but because it, it was just, everything was just clicking with him. They just kept it in. So I was like, all right, that's I was that's like the really whole thing. It's like, don't kill the dog. I know it's a spoiler alert a little bit, but the dog does not die. Feel free to watch this, bed owners. <laughs> don't be afraid to watch it. <laughs> but, but I loved the only, it. The only thing that I had any, I, I thought some of the CGI didn't look very good, but I, you, you can't have everything. No. The, if, like, if you just want, like, just a rollicking action, action sci-fi movie, yeah. This is the best one I've seen in a while. They gave the Predator a little bit of a facelift, too. They seem to do that in every one, though. They seem to tweak This one it a was more bit. noticeable to me than the others, though. And I, I, I don't want to spoil it, but it does connect back to, uh, to, one, of the, to one of the other Predator movies at the very end. I'm not going to spoil uh, it. Oh, yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. So that was super cool. Yeah, exactly. That was. <laughs> I said they were trying to motion. Yeah. Well, at least it's not a it's not a video podcast, so no one no one will know. Right. That's true. Well, I know that's why I'm sitting here doing sign language. But <laughs> yeah, it is it is a fun fun movie. I haven't watched the version that's dubbed in Comanche. I I might go back and watch it. Well, I'm gonna I, I'm probably gonna watch this again anyway. I'll probably watch the version that's in Comanche that's also on Hulu. I dig. They had one in Comanche, right? Uh, it's it's under the it's in the extras section if you click the on extra the extra section. I didn't. Someone was telling me about that and I didn't see it, uh, so I didn't have any idea that 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 would be interesting watching it like that. Well, I had to I had to watch all the King Kong movies this week, so I was like, all right, I'll I'll, I'll probably watch the Comanche cut of uh, of Prey next week, and I'll uh, I'll probably catch up and uh, watch they them. Or is it they slash them? They slash that, them. I, I actually, they slash them would actually make, make they sense. Slash them. Slash yeah, them. just not enough gore for me. That's all. <laughs> and there's a new Ron Howard movie, I think, also on Hulu that I want to see. That that the one with the the one about the miners. The miners, the ones. What miners? Yeah, there's like mi miners that get trapped. Um, I, I want to check that out too. There was I, it was one of the original. There's two stories that, that happened here about I miners. Is it a true story? It's based on a true story, but I think this one takes place somewhere in Eastern Europe. I don't, I don't know too much about. Yeah, they the had movie. their share of mining collapses too. So, like, 
I, I work at um I work at a Buffalo Wild Wings. A lot of times we have the TVs on and there's no sound. A lot of them because we're just playing rock music. And I've seen the trailer just without any sound for the for this new Ron Howard movie that's on Hulu. So I'm like, yeah, what the hell? I like Ron. I like Ron Howard's movies. Yeah. So I'll throw it on. Check it out. It's on Hulu. Uh, I, the, the title escapes me right now, but I really want to see that, and I'll probably check that out in the next couple of days. Is that all you've been doing for the last little bit? You just been hanging out, working? Um, I well. I, I've been working, I've been watching the King Kong movies, and recently Fred Olin Ray, the director of Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers, and a lot, uh, now apparently he's moved on to doing made-for-TV Christmas movies. Really? What a change! Well, that's, I mean, Sam Irvin does that too. Um, that's true, he does. Uh, Michael Verratti, uh, David Dakota, a lot of these guys moved on to doing like these t- made-for-TV. Hey, a lot of horror. work. Yeah. So he wrote a he wrote a book on how to on how to write the perfect TV Christmas movie. So I was like, you know what? What the hell? I picked it up and I've been reading that. Um, I've been reading that. I've been watching all the King Kong movies. I saw the first uh, Baby Groot animated short that's on Disney Plus, and it's it's cute. It's it's uh it's they're just a series of little five minute shorts. So it's kind of like the old Mickey Mouse or old Looney Tunes, where they just like release like this little cartoon right. and. Like it's uh, kind of thing. yeah, it's an adorable little thing. Um, but yeah, that's that's basically it. That's uh, I, I've been I've been reading and uh, right now uh, Justin is out in uh, somewhere in Eastern Europe shooting subspecies five. So when he gets back, I'll try to I'll link up with him in New York and see see if we can awesome. get something going. That'd be cool. And Keith. What's up with you? Not a lot, actually. I had this week off, sleeping a lot, and finished watching The Sandman, which was excellent. Um, Neil Gaiman and David Goyer, their production. Nice. They got. I mean, they pulled every single Shakespearean actor out for it as well, which is quite interesting. <laughs> so, for which? For The Sandman. I mean, they're all like the top of the English acting chain for the only thing missing I was gonna say they had quite a quite an impressive cast. Jolie Richardson and Stephen Fryer and so on and so forth. So I thought it was excellent. I can't sing its praises enough. Totally loved it. And then watching this and that, watching 13 the musical that started on Netflix, which is a Broadway musical that has a bunch of 13 year olds in it. Which is where Ariana Grande got her start. <laughs> really? Uh, Dileys and um, a bun- um, bunch of people got their start on the, on the stage show. I'm going to become names afterwards. But I mean, of course, they're not in this one because I mean, that was many years ago. So but it's quite interesting. So it's quite fun. So um, but besides that, not a lot. Just catching here and there, pull all the movies out that we'll be covering for season six that starts next month and got all those ready to go. And yeah, that's right. He's gonna he's gonna ask us trick questions by the at the end of this, and I forgot to be ready again. <laughs> I just thought of that at the last one. <laughs> yeah, since I suggested all these anthology movies, I went and uh, dug up all my I dug up my book on all the uh, all the Amicus movies and uh, book about uh, uh, spirits of the dead and all this other stuff, so I could start like taking notes on them. So I started doing that. Um, I've been reading up and uh, just I have like a little notebook and I take it with me and I just kind of take notes for these movies that are that, that I that I suggested that, uh, that, that that we cover next season. So I'm just getting to start on those early, just getting all the background down now. 
so I can just revisit the movies and just watch them when it comes time and just look over my quick notes. We text back and forth. It's like, okay, well, if we can find like two, and then we are like, how many are there? And then it's like, wow, we got 20, we got um, 24. That's good. And we can do this now. <laughs> yeah, there's actually, um, there's actually a documentary about the history of anthology films that came out during the pandemic. And the name escape, the title escapes me right now. I'm trying to find it on my shelf and I don't see it on my shelf. Um, and it was, it was shot during the pandemic because everybody that, uh, or during the early days of the pandemic, like in early 2020, because everybody uh, interviewed on the documentary, it's all like a Zoom call. And there, there's a couple of old ones from like, there's uh, a couple from like 1919 that are on there as special features. So I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to enjoy uh, digging into those. And, and just doing them in general. Like, I, I've always liked anthology movies. Everybody kind of shits on them a lot of the time, but I've always liked them, so. Well, I think the only, we only covered one anthology. We did, did um, what, Trilogy of Terror, I think that's the only anthology one that we did. Oh, you guys did that? Ah. Yeah, I love Trilogy Sorry of Terror. Sorry I missed that one. I, that okay. one's still to this day, man. I, I just always think that little, that little thumping on the floor. The, the Zuni fetish doll. Yes. Oh, my God. That scared the Everybody shit out of me that. when I was a kid. Everybody remembers that. It's, it's great. Well, I took off the Dark Shadows that we did a Dan Curtis month, so it was that. And oh, did you cover the... Did you cover his version of Jekyll and Hyde? No, we didn't cover that. I love did, that version. Uh, it's my favorite version of it. This is all before I joined the show. Um, Trilogy of Terror, Burnt Offerings, the book and the screen. We were able to use the book and the screen, the two for one, and we were able to do Dark, dark Shadows. We were able to get everything in for that month, which is quite, it's quite rare to be able to find someone and be able to fit them in our categories for that month sort of thing. Dan Curtis, I, I I feel like he's really underrated as a um, as a movie uh, a movie director, a movie producer because he's made so many so many horror films that I love that were he just made them for TV. Like the Night Stalker was his. Yeah. And for a while, it was the biggest um, the the biggest uh, non Super Bowl uh, TV airing of all time for a, a long while. I don't know if it's been beaten since. Um, his version of Dracula is great. His version of uh, Jekyll and Hyde, both of them are, are Jack Palance as the lead. They're both fantastic. Burnt Offerings, Trilogy of Terror. God, I wish I would have been around for that one. That would have been awesome. Well, for um, Night Stalker, you would have X-Files. That was the breeding ground for X-Files, wasn't it? Chris Carter uh, has actually said that. Now, he, he had Darren McGavin on, what, like two, three times, I think? Yeah. I used and to actually, watch that when I was babysitting, when I was like 15 or 16. I would turn it on. I'd be all alone in this lady's house. It scared the frick out of me. And, I and actually, as it relates it. to Darren McGavin, when I, was, uh, when I was a film student in New York in the early 2000s, like 2005 or so, I was, uh, I was writing a script and I wanted to um, get uh, Darren McGavin as like a little cameo. And, I, and I, I found out who his handlers were and I wrote them an email and I was like, look, I'll raise the money if you guys can tell me how much he wants to fly to New York and shoot one day. And the response was, because uh, was, Darren at this point, I think was already like in his late 80s or something. It was like a year before he died. Uh, they wrote back that uh, Darren appreciates someone as young as you remembering him and he would love to do it even for free but his health was just so bad at that what point. What a rip. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it, it, was, it was the same thing with, uh, with Paul Nashi, the, um, 
the guy who played the werewolf uh, uh, in all the Spanish Wolfman movies. I contact. I found his son on Facebook. I contacted his son. I was like, hey, how much would it take to get your dad out here to, you know, and he was like, no, my dad's in very poor health. And yeah, he passed away. That's so sure. sad. That's so sad, too. That's, I mean, that's, that's what happens when you like a lot of these really older, older actors. Like, you know, my dream was working with Christopher Lee and that never happened, <laughs> you know? Well, it is what it is. It is what it is. Just got to have more well, dreams. You also forget about how old they get as well. Yeah, Christopher Lee was still working well into his 90s, though. Ah, so yeah. he was he was in great shape. I was really surprised to see him in Star Wars. That really freaked me out. I honestly thought he was going to be the George Burns of horror. I thought he was going to hit 100. And he fell short a couple of years. Yeah, he did, didn't he? He died. He was like ninety-five or something when he died. He was still working. That's he was still a vital person, very vital. Yeah. <laughs> it took him a long was, time to come to terms with this horror stuff as well, but he did at the end, so that was good. He embraced it at the end. I guess he realized that that's what everybody remembers him for. But there was a while. Sam Irvin talks about it. How he was yeah. in the interview we did, we did with him last year. How for a while in Hollywood, people would approach him and be like, "Christopher, we love your movies. We'd love to have you in this." Movie. I don't do those movies anymore. Yeah, he felt. I think he probably felt pigeonholed for sure. Well, he was one of those guys who took who was like a serious actor. Like he he was he was he, kind of thespian. Yeah, he was very much one of those guys who was very very serious about the craft, and he wanted to. He wanted like I get it. He wanted to move forward, and he started working with Spielberg. He started working with those people. So, but it never occurred to him the reason you're working with Spielberg and all these people is because, because, of, your movies. Of, because of those horror movies that you now shit on. So, and in the end, that's what he's remembered for. Another thing is, is that, I mean, it's not some, we don't have that much. It doesn't really happen today as it did back then, but back then you could, you, people got pigeonholed. Oh, you're only known for this. Oh, yeah. so you, you do this and so on and so forth. Lugosi yeah. infamously. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. There was a special about him on Tubi I watched a couple weeks back, and it just made me sad. Well, you I forgot look, what it's called. But even looking at TV and film, I mean, oh, you're a TV actor, so you'll never do film. Yeah. If you're a film, you do TV, that's yeah. a death. Yeah, there's all that as well. Nowadays, well, that sounds more like opinion of people who are in the business than I mean, kind I of pigeonholing you. Monroe lives. She probably would have been on Love Boat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> probably i gotta oh, check that movie out when it comes out that Marilyn monroe movie actually looks really good which one uh, netflix uh, blonde yeah it's a, a it. pound of her life it so, comes out i think next month or something like that it's coming I out watched really a, i watched a special about her what was that was on, on netflix i can't remember what it was i think you're the one that told me about it keith about uh Marilyn monroe and and her actual what they actually think happened to her and oh yeah uh, that's on netflix was it on netflix or was it yeah it's hard to get so that brings us to king kong which is a 1933 american pre-code adventure fantasy horror monster film directed and produced by marion c cooper and ernest b shudstack the screenplay by James Ashbourne, Krellman, and Roth Rose was developed from an idea conceived by Cooper and Edgar Wallace. It stars Fay Ray, Robert Armstrong, and Bruce Cabot, and it tells the story of a giant ape dubbed Kong who attempts to possess a beautiful young woman. 
It features stop-motion animation by Willis O'Brien, and a musical score by Max Steiner is the first entry in the King Kong franchise. King Kong opened in New York City on March 2nd, 1933, to rave reviews and has since been ranked by Rotten Tomatoes as the greatest horror film of all time and the 56th greatest film of all time. In 1991, it was deemed culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant by the Library of Congress and selected for preservation in the National Film Registry. A sequel titled Song of Son of Kong was fast-tracked and released the same year, and several more films made in the following decades, including two remakes which were made in 1976 and 2005, respectively, and a reboot in 2017. So what we're going to do is cut to the trailer of King Kong from 1933. We'll be right back. movies were made. Adventure to make you wonder if it's true while your eyes convince you that it is. Truly the thrill of thrills. Don't miss it this time. Welcome back to Literature Legends Podcast, and we're discussing King Kong from 1933. And starting with you, Joe, what are your thoughts of King Kong from 1933? Uh, I guess it's welcome to modern cinema because I feel like this movie, probably along with The Public Enemy and Scarface, probably are the, are the three movies in that time period that I think kind of kind of changed the game. Um, this is the the effects by willis o'brien obviously stand out and actually i was watching a documentary on marion c cooper last night and um bob burns who's a huge fan of old monster movies was showing off that he has one of the animatronic kongs and he was showing how it works and everything for 1933 and he was showing the detail that like you know he'd move the finger and step back and have to photograph it, then move it slightly a little bit more, then go back and photograph it. Yeah, that just sounds so time-consuming. Did they it's say how long it took? how long this movie took. The, the movie took so long to that, that, dirt, that they made the most dangerous game while they, were, while they were still editing King Kong using a lot of the same sets and a lot of the same cast, which is another fantastic movie uh, that, that showed Beck and uh, Marion C. Cooper made. Um, and that's another one that's been remade up, you know, a, a gazillion times. Predators, which I, I just talked about the other day when I was watching it. I was like, wait, this is just the most dangerous games. Um, so, yeah, it's it's 
everything that this movie did for just the 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 way the the way the story was told, the 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 the, the forward movement of special effects, um, the dinosaurs and the I mean that stuff is just back then. Even when I was a little kid, and this is in the seventies. I thought that was just, oh my God, this is so cool. What I remember like, the first time I watched it. Well, I think and this I mean, is one of the first movies is actually has advanced editing in it as well. Because normally, right. if you look at films around this time period, I mean, it's, it's a lot of the camera stays in one place and basically the actors, you know, you have long. Yeah, right. Here, I mean, they're doing a lot of quick edits, you know. Between Fay Ray being Fay Ray and Fay Ray being a doll and Fay Ray being, you know, and all the other stuff, but moving all these parts together, and they do it fantastically well. I mean, which is which is why I say this is kind of like the birth of of, of and it probably isn't until Citizen Kane years later that like that that kind of that kind of projects everything forward again. Uh, but yeah, the editing style, uh, just Fay Ray is the first ever scream queen. When you Basically, really think yeah. about it. Um, well, this, this was her first big role, I think. Uh, probably her first big one, but around this time, well, Doctor X, I think, was before this. Well, with uh, by Michael Curtiz, I think Doctor X might have been before this, but she was doing a lot of horror movies at this time. A lot of them with Lionel Atwell, like she was. Um, God, what was the other one? She did Doctor X, The Most Dangerous Game, right, Four Feathers. Four Feathers is another Marion C. Cooper movie, and there's. Um, it's one I have to see. I've seen clips of it, and the wedding march. But she was doing a lot of horror at this time. The Vampire Bat, I think, was around this time. So Faye Ray was kind of like becoming. She the is first a scream queen. She was a screamer, that's for sure. The first one. She's the Damn. original scream queen. Like there's, um, there's there's one other thing that you you mentioned the T Rex fight. The after he kills it, and you just kind of see King Kong just kind of flopping. Just taking the jaw and just watching it, watching it fall, watching it drop. I'm like, there's something about that that's so. I mean, the, the fact that the, you know how long it took to photograph that. So the fact that they that they went and did it at all, it it, it does show like, kind of like this kind of childlike quality in Kong, which is super cool. Like it, he's just like, oh shit, oh this is. Yeah, they, I, I they almost tell humanized him. I can't tell if it's like he's thinking it's cool or if he's just like, oh, well, so that's what happens. Like he's learning. Oh, that's what maybe happens. a little bit of both. Because I'm sure maybe. it's not his first dinosaur kill at this point. Probably not. Um, but yeah, that, that, that's the, that's the thing about Kong is they did humanize this this big monster. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Keith. Okay, I think this is the first movie that they actually take a you know, supposed to be the villain of the piece and humanize him, so you actually cared about him. Man, this is the first movie that does that. I can't think of any movie before this that does that. Frankenstein. Frankenstein might have done it. Well, Frankenstein was before that, so I guess that would be the first one. Well, it does say that Cooper did have a fascination with primatology, and he, he just loved gorillas and stuff like that, so that might have something to do with it, too. I mean, he did study them a little bit. And, you know, one. they're very curious creatures, which is probably back then. I mean, we still had a lot of mystery in the world back then. A lot of people have never seen a gorilla. You know, I mean, so I thought it was a nice little touch. Actually, I thought it was really cool. Uh, well, he's he's also apparently he also had a fascination with airplanes and flying, so that that figures into this too, right? Um, Cooper was a a world traveler, like he just loved just like going out into into the jungles. So, 
I feel I, I um I think I had uh, I think it was I forgot who mentioned it during the documentary that the Carl Denham character is actually based on Cooper himself. Yeah, he, the, he he used to film a lot of big animal movies, and I guess he was trying to get something off the ground with Paramount, but they didn't like that there was no romance in it, and it was just and it was just exactly like Denham was saying in the movie. I've got to have some romance in my movie. They don't like just my animals. So yeah, I read that too. I thought that was an interesting little background. Go ahead, Keith. I didn't say anything. I was listening. Oh, I thought you did. Um, yeah, this 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 does seem to be kind of an autobiographical film for uh for Cooper. Um, and I I I I really he he's he he kind of invented Cinerama. There's so much that he did, and King Kong was just the start of it. And he went on to work with John Ford, and he went on to do all these amazing things, um, just for cinema history that. You know, without him, I who knows what the medium would be like. So we do have to maybe pay a little little bit of respect to him for that because the, the guy changed the course of cinema history with this movie in particular. And yeah, the the humanity of King Kong and just they're they're watching him actually care for the you know uh, for Fay Ray and watching him actually protect her is really sweet and it's such. God, it's such a great Even movie. though she just didn't want and wasn't having any. In the beginning. At least Naomi Watts gives him a chance, you know, in our second movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, that one was more overt. That one was very more overt. And Jessica Lang in 76 seemed like she wanted to fuck him at times. Yeah, uh, well, no, I thought it was funny. because Jessica Lang, my favorite move, part of that movie, wasn't my favorite King Kong rendition for real, but. Is where she, you know she starts beating him on the nose. You want to eat me? Go ahead and just eat me. <laughs> Which I, speaking of on the nose, I think that was the I think that was the theme of the movie. It's just kind of that thematically that, that the seventy six one just seemed really really horny to me. That and entire yeah, movie. Well, I mean, he's taking her clothes off, but then again. In, in this one, Faye Ray, you know, well, it depends on which part you see, because a lot of they don't show that where he's ripping her clothes off and then, you know, smelling the perfume probably is probably what she had on her clothing. Well, I think I think that I think the 76 version of King Kong is taking the piss out of King Kong. That's what I felt about it. Maybe. Because it's all camp. It's over the top. It's like and it's, it's almost like it's not. I mean, which we'll get to with um, Peter Jackson's. But it's not a love letter to King Kong. It's like pissing all over King Kong. I wonder why. Because, I don't. Maybe because you know somebody in Hollywood go, oh, "Be this a good idea," and then you know, which I think what we find in our remakes, remakes sort of thing is that you know you have the original, and then someone goes, "Oh, I'm going to make it my own. And I'm going to make it better than the original." Well, it did. And then, it, it did kind of go after. End up being a love. What you should do is do a love letter to the original. Well, the 76 version, you're talking love letters. I think that it was giving a nod to the climate cult back then because it was starting to gear up mid-70s to whenever it was trying to get there. And they were they were going after the petroleum. So they were kind of maybe making fun of that or bringing attention to what people thought was an issue at that time. Oh, yeah. probably. And I, and I think it all, they also do update the story to 1976 as well. I mean, it's, you know... You know, that, there are probably problems with that as well. I mean, the story takes place in the 70s. <clears throat> right there, so. I was a kid. I didn't really care what was going on. In the 70s. 
I just remember it's campus Christmas, and it all seems everyone's got their tongue firmly placed in their cheek in that one. Well, you, yeah, you have legendary comedic actor Charles Grodin as one of yeah. your leads, so you kind of you kind of realize that they're, they're going to play it up for last. Um, it's I, I feel like that version's missing, like the thirty-three version. I feel like it's almost a almost a personal story um, that yeah. uh, that they wanted to tell. The seventy-six version feels kind of like a cash grab to me and then the 2005 version like Keith said is kind of a love letter to King Kong and kind of like just the the action adventure genre of the 30s so like I like I saw a lot of nods that I think were uh uh unspoken nods to like old jungle movies but we'll get to that in 2005 version but I feel like the 33 one was um Marion C. Cooper telling his own story in try in part partially in trying to get this movie made in the first place, and kind of the the the, the greed and uh, the lack of the lack of awareness that 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 he was I guess saying that movie producers have and he he's he's portray- Carl Denham is portrayed as this guy who has this burning ambition to tell this to to, to tell his stories, and he's just got to try to fit them into the box for the studio. Um, and I, I, I really feel like that's, that's, that's what he, he, he was trying to tell a story about himself, trying to get these movies made. Well, they did matte painting and the, the rear projection with the miniatures and all that. Cause I don't think a lot of that was happening in 1933. One day, oh. a lot of people didn't have the money. This was the beginning of the great depression. And so there was a whole lot of history. So, you know, circumstances, why Paramount, I believe it was Paramount, wasn't it? No, it was and, RKO. RKO, RKO. Why am I thinking Paramount? But um, Paramount did the '76 version. Oh, okay, there's my brain. But whatever happened to RKO? Uh, they dissolved in the fifty, the early '50s. Yeah. Warner yeah. Brothers, I think, yeah. bought it. Didn't Universal take them over? Uh, Warner. Yeah. Um, and actually, RKO infamously, when they sold the library, uh, a bunch of the executives were dumping some of the films off the Santa Monica Pier. What? Even, even though they sold them, yes. Yeah, some some RKO movies are, are lost because supposedly some of the executives uh, just took some of the film, and just tossed them off the Santa Monica Pier after, after the sale. That's the first I've heard of that. What a I, I, thing I, to do to the rest of. There's the a documentary humanity. that I saw about about film preservation where somebody talks about uh, talks about that happening. I don't wow, remember. I never heard of that. I'm gonna have to look all that up later. RKO was considered an independent company, even though they were making major films. They, were, they weren't Paramount. They weren't Universal. They weren't Warner. Yeah. So they're always. I mean, they always had to fight against them every step of the way as well. So, um, I mean, and they had Citizen Kane, Top Hat, Cat People. I mean. The val- I mean, yeah, the Fred val- Astaire, Wonderful Life. I mean, they they had so much when, film behind them. When Val Luton uh, w- uh, moved from, uh, I think it was with MGM. He was uh, David O. Selznick's um, uh, assistant or something, and he moved to RKO. He changed the game, man, with with, uh, with some of the horror movies he made. Uh, some of the horror movies he produced for RKO, and then you, you from there you get uh, Robert Wise, Mark Robeson, um, uh, Jacques Tournoir, uh, Tournoir, all came up through there. So 
they they changed they changed horror cinema. If you ever get a chance to watch any of those movies, those are some of RKO's best uh, best horror movies and some of the best horror movies of the forties. Um, but yeah, I, don't, I I guess King Kong might be their first like hit. I I don't that that I don't know. I don't know if they King started. Kong they, a- they I think they were in nineteen twenty eight. That was when they came to be the company, and then it was fifty seven. I think right. Yeah, it was in the fifties that they that they folded. Because it took two years for them to fold completely. Yeah. But Still I'm, sad though. God, what a like a talk about an end of an era. You know that really did, did kind of hurt a little bit. I don't know for me because I love that old shit. A lot of the old studios were were, were kind of falling and collapsing at that point because I think MGM sold a lot of their library at that point. Paramount just to keep the lights on sold like a bunch of their stuff to Universal around that time. Uh, monogram monogram i'm shocked lasted as long as it did they sold like a portion of their library to warner and then like a bunch of the older movies went into public domain um so there that that, was, that era lost all remember we were talking about this last time the fire and that new zealand might possibly uh, that was fox Fox had that night. Oh wait, uh, Fox had the 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 fire in New Jersey in 1933 and it, or 1937, and like it destroyed a lot of their movies. And the executive at the the executives at the time that were interviewed were like, "Oh no, it wasn't anything important. It was just some old films that got destroyed." And I'm like, "Fuck!" Oh, no. <laughs> you had no idea. You, <laughs> you had no idea what you had. You had like everything that Theta Barra made. You had. Uh, God, so many movies from the silent era that Fox produced just disappeared overnight. But we were talking about it because somebody was searching for uh, for a copy of London After Midnight and trying to find it in New Zealand because they think, well, that's the last place the movies went because they would ship the prints. So, God, we got off on a tangent here from Yeah, King we Con- did. We always do, <laughs> I mean, I guess the I guess you also need to remember is that no one thought there would be a history for cinema because at that time there was no place for it. But now yeah. with the invention of home video and DVD and streaming and so what we have today, they, I mean, there's no way that would have known like in the '50s that this is what we'd have today. You know what I mean? So, and well, exactly the people like us that search for money this made us money. No one's ever going to see it again. No one cares. Not realizing that, that people. Care. That was the thought process. Yeah, and it wasn't until like the in the early '40s, Universal re-released uh, Frankenstein and Dracula on a double bill, and like there were lines around the block to go see yes. it. So they were like, "Wait a second, the, people are going to see these old movies," and that they started preserving things a little bit. But then they lost a lot of their stuff in the '60s when there was that massive fire at Universal. That's right. So what is it with fires and, and movie companies? Well, uh, the, the film is very um, uh, flammable. That's the problem. Right. Yeah. The nitrate film. But don't don't they take precautions? You know, they didn't. They didn't back that. Very small spark. That's the thing. Right. You know, it's not like so. You know, it's not like you know. All it would take, you know, like taking it, you know, lighter and holding against it. All you need to do is probably take the lighter and just look it across it. You know, it's wow. not, and actually, the, the term silver screen is because, I'm sorry, Keith, what were you saying? I talked over you. Bombs out of nitrate. No. Yeah, that's true. And, and actually, the, the, the term silver screen comes because the, uh, the nitrate film, when it was projected, 
like it actually sparkled like silver supposedly i i'd never seen a nitrate print of anything so i don't that know would be that's... so cool to see though i would have to google it it's just <laughs> so it's such a combustible element that yeah the, the the fires would start really easy and then it would just the whole vault would catch fire i mean one thing you can remember also in this day of time is that when you saw a film it was like going to the theater once yeah. you saw it lived in your brain you would never see it again i mean luckily because of tv tv brought a lot of the stuff for i mean for our generation we're quite lucky to have television but if television never was invented you'd never we, these would just be things that your parents would tell you about well that's that's what ended up happening with a lot of these older films is they ended up being bought in like these package deals like abc would buy like this entire package from universal and it just like a hundred movies they just air them because they had the extra time um and that's actually incidentally what was killing a lot of these studios in the 50s was television that's what makes yeah. it so pretty though the silver screen is the nitrate in here i'm looking at the like the laura bacall you know like screenshots and it's just like i mean it's just beautiful i yeah. mean it's just beautiful i mean i guess another thing you say about King Kong that is the godfather of stop motion animation. Without King Kong, you wouldn't have Ray Harryhausen. You wouldn't have Henry Selleck, who did Nightmare Before Christmas. You wouldn't have um, George Pell, you know, the, circuit, you know, the Seven Faces of Dr. Lau, Puppet Tunes, um, Gumby. And, <laughs> and, and in the case of Ray Harryhausen, I think Willis O'Brien was actually his mentor, too. So I think he actually brought him in on, was it Mighty Joe Young? I think he brought in Ray Harryhausen, and that's yeah. So I love Mighty that. Joe Young. It has it's much kind of, happier ending. <laughs> it's kind of the god in, in a way, you know, with maybe Frankenstein and Dracula, the Godfather of horror films in general. Just all horror films. Well, uh, we had Nosferatu and stuff like that, though, too. Well, Nosferatu well, was lost for a long time because yeah. uh, they ordered it destroyed, and it wasn't until that's much right. later. That's right. I forgot about discovered. that. You're right. And then they had to wait till the family members were dead before they said they actually had a copy somewhere. Yeah, well, that's because they were fighting with Stoke was a Bram Stoker's wife, wasn't well, it? No. Yeah. What happened was every single copy in the lawsuit meant, meant to be destroyed. If the family lived, you had that had to be destroyed. That's law. But yeah. luckily, they found a copy. I don't know if the person held on to it. So they, you know, whoever had the court you know thank god they did jeez they held on to that wait the soaker family died just said oh we have a copy now so, in a way that's kind of happening again now with you know the, the news out of warner brothers with batgirl and um what's the deal uh, with that they figure they're going to make more money by uh declaring it a tax write-off i guess they they i from what i from what i understand it was basically done but it is uh, from a lot of the stuff that I've read, it's apparently terrible, and they feel like it would be an embarrassment to Warner to put, to put it out. Is it that bad? Supposedly? I guess. I well, guess. it's got to be that bad. You consider some of the stuff that Warner's created that was really bad. What is this? One? How bad is this one? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so it's kind of happening again now. Monsters, Batman films. I don't know. It must be. <laughs> Well, the second Schumacher Batman film is embarrassingly bad, but so embarrassingly bad that it's entertaining to watch. Yeah. Like, if that movie was more competently made, it would not be as much fun. I mean, I think the bat his Batman films is probably what's outed him. <laughs> 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 probably out of the closet. So. 
I've never watched the audio commentary with it, but I heard he actually like is very apologetic for like making the movie at all. I'm, I'm gonna have to watch that some at for some Bat Girl. No, for uh, for Batman and Robin, the 1998 one with Arnold Schwarzenegger. But apparently, oh, Joel Schumacher apologizes. Why would he apologize point, for that? I like that one. It's well, considered I mean, probably the worst Batman movie. It's considered to be. I don't I know if I agree. Liked it. It. I love Mr. Free. I thought Arnold Schwarzenegger was totally wrong for the part, though. Ice to meet you. Yeah. <laughs> right? He's got a fucking Batman credit card. Like, where do they send the bill? They can figure out who he is. I'm just, I mean, to be honest, I mean, most of the film, most of the money for that film probably went to Arnold Schwarzenegger's bank account. Oh, definitely. Right. Well, I mean, probably a lot of stuff had to suffer because of that. So, yeah. yeah. But, you know, Clooney was a big TV star transitioning over. Transitioning. But I think another thing that's interesting about Kong is that it also de- delves deep into the whole depression and what was going on at that time as well, which is quite interesting. Yeah, and it was kind of soul-sucking, too, because, you know, she or she is looking at that apple. You know, she's starving. Well, my parents are still alive. They're they're going on 91, and they remember the Great Depression, and I still hear about the Great Depression, you know, and how bad it was, and, and you know, and how they had to save baking grease for, you know, stuff. So, I mean, it was, there were people were starving. It was really sad. And Faye Ray was, yeah, Faye Ray at the beginning of this movie, you feel for her when she... And I mean, it's a catalyst ultimately because who was he? He had a he had an actress in mind that he couldn't get. So or oh no, the um, the agent wouldn't uh, wouldn't let her come over because he wasn't giving them enough information. He's just like well, yeah, we're because just he was button. taking them on a secretive location, and he's probably going to screw up his actress. That's somewhere. In I the mean, jungle. look what happened. Okay, I mean, a large nuclear-sized gorilla gets a hold of this poor woman. Okay. <laughs> Well, I guess, I mean, it also shows that what happens when civilized society thinks they can overtake, you know, and just go take over wherever they want to go as well. And here they come, they go encroach on these people's, you know, land. They're not invited. Yeah. And, you know, the And then they, they take this poor beast to New York City where he's, he's just totally killed by Helldiver warplanes. You know, I mean... It really, I mean, I felt bad. I was really hoping he was going to just kick all their asses. I just, I hate watching him die because it wasn't his fault that he was brought to civilization. Exactly. Quote, unquote. So I, I get, re- I just, I just, I don't, it's one thing I like about this movie is I thought that the King, uh, King Kong was the hero of the movie and he deserved uh, to live, damn it. He, uh, he kind of is because the, the Carl Denham in this, in this version. He's a cad. In this version, maybe not as bad as in the uh, the two thousand five version. Yeah, the, the way Jack Black portrays him. Well, I mean, yeah, it looked like he'd sell his own mother for a percentage. Yeah, literally. Yeah, we'll we'll get to Jack Black's performance, but the but yeah, the way everything that happens here is the fault of Carl Denham. Yeah, and that that's that's the way it's 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 kind of portrayed. It's all about uh, that money. It, I mean, basically, who cares if we rape the natural world? As long as I got a nice big fat paycheck. Well, in this in this one, it doesn't really. I, I never felt that Carl Denham was was about the paycheck. I always felt he was about the art. 
Like, I don't care if I just, if I don't care who has to get hurt in the process, as long as I get to express myself, it's kind of, that's, that's the vibe that I got. I, I never felt like it's that one money. shot. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Get that. Yeah. Which I mean, in a way, a lot of filmmakers that I've met over the years have, have been like that. Like, Oh, you know, pain is temporary, but getting that shot is, is forever. Or like it's, Alan Bernstein and the exorcist. <laughs> uh, John Savage in Salvador. Yeah. Uh, he, he's well, trying to get that. Alfred Hitchcock's been you know, known to do that as well. Yeah. Hitchcock was apparently torturing. Hitchcock was real. I would have hate to be an actress for Alfred. Yeah, apparently he was a huge dick. <laughs> well, apparently he was awful. Though, look at the art that he gave us. Would we have yeah. the same? He wasn't. That's the you know, it's kind of this weird thing, isn't it? It's like well, I guess as an actor, you could well, if you're gonna go on this particular director's film, you probably probably did your research, you know, there might be some pain involved. Is it worth it to you? I guess that's the question you have to ask yourself when you take on such a job. So well, if the we, end product is something that keeps you is gonna keep your memory alive, you gotta remember that as well. And here we are 90 years later talking about talking about king kong so it, it it does kind of fit and this this was kind of an autobiographical thing i mean uh the best picture that year was cavalcade i think nobody fucking talks about it nobody talks about the 1933 best picture winner like no offense to frank lloyd who's a great filmmaker but nobody nobody cares about cavalcade you know 89, 90 years later, but everybody still talks about the original King Kong. Right, right. So in, in a way, you know, he Cooper's making this film and Carl Denham is his surrogate. And in a way, he's kind of proven right. Despite being maybe the villain of the piece, he's kind of proven right that if you, you, you create something really great, it'll live on beyond your years. And that legacy, it's, it's what artists dream of. Yeah. What about, what did you think about, uh, I mean, with 1933, I guess they, even they had their censorship. I mean, uh, I guess they wanted to get rid of the part with the brontosaurus mauling the crewmen in the water. That's like one of my favorite parts is the evil brontosaurus, who was a total vegetation eater. But I mean, apparently brontosaurus, no one knew a brontosaurus back then was going to kill people. I, I, I don't think we knew any of that back then. Uh, no, we didn't. And then you got you got King Kong undressing Ian Darrow and then sniffing his fingers was one of my personal favorite hee-haw moments. And then he's and, biting and stepping on the natives when he attacks the village. Another good point. The, the way, oh my God, the way the way they show that, it just looks so, it looks brutal. <laughs> it's fun though. It's just good, clean fun. And people wanted to censor it even back then. A year later, the Hays Code uh, goes into full effect and we stopped getting movies like this. So for a little while, everything had to be sanitized until like the 60s. But Tarzan had to be sanitized. If you look at the pre-Hays Tarzan, you know, with a nude swimming and everything. Well, did you guys see an additional scene with giant insects, the spiders, the reptile-like predator, the tentacle creature devouring? The crew members had, um, that were shaking off the log. That was in the newer one they had. They showed it, but I don't remember seeing that in the old one. No, what, no, what happened basically is, is that when Peter Jackson did the 2005 
they lost that footage. So he went back and reshot that because that was lost. So that was what y'all were talking about. Okay, with the, the stop, yeah, the yeah, stop motion. Did, okay, did. thank you. Because I was going nuts trying to find that. that. Way they did in 1933 and they even put that back in the film. So then when you do watch it, it seems you won't even know. It's because there's only like they say, I guess there's only a few stills and pre-production drawings from that. Yeah. No, I mean, what a shame something like that was lost. I would have loved to have seen what that looked well, like. No, if you, if you buy if you buy a Blu-ray cut of King Kong or a DVD of King Kong, it's in there now. If they you actually buy, got the footage, or they're just showing the pre-production stuff. The story. No, what, no, what happened was is Peter Jackson went through and refilmed that in sequence using stop motion animation with the same models and everything. And you went back and did it the same exact way that they did. So they didn't put it in the film. So you wouldn't even know that it's been taken out or added in or anything. It just flows. But that's is that that in the Blu-ray because or because I, well, I mean, in Peter in Jackson's film, it's clearly there. Yeah, no, it's in the black and white. King Kong 1933 DVD or Blu-ray that was released after 2006. Okay, gotcha. Because I, I really know, want I to see that. Pretty, I might be on the streaming platform. Maybe it's on Amazon. I don't know what the Amazon version is. Right, right. We can put it there because that was Peter Jackson wanted to give something back to King Kong. And because that film got um, tossed and got cut somewhere, for some reason got missing, uh, the it wasn't in the original they saw it, just for some reason between the, at, at one point, film um, films used to get released at the cinema and the projector person at the cinema could decide what they wanted to take out. They thought the film was running too long because they wanted more showings. Yeah. Right, um, right. I guess it was first broadcast for regular TV, March 5th, 1956. And I don't know, Keith remembers, I think Joe, um, you're either not born or you, or you just don't remember because you were young, but we used to watch this stuff. We'd wait for this movie to come on regular TV because we loved it so much because there wasn't VHS yet. And it's just like, yay, million dollar movie, King Kong's on. I mean, me and my brothers would run to the TV. I right don't there. remember. I don't remember pre-VHS days. Like I was born in 81. So I, I had VHS basically my entire life. Um, so I actually, I've never known a world where I were like, you had like, no access to it. Seriously. That's what it was too. Yeah. I mean, you had to all, wait to see that film. I mean, I mean, even then, even in the VHS days, it's not like every video store carried everything. No. So I, I'd still have to wait for some stuff to come on TV. Uh, but yeah, King Kong, I don't, I don't, I don't know if the video store that was right on my corner had it or not. Cause I think I saw it when I was a teenager um because I, I i started getting into i started getting into older movies and like well they released this on laser disc in 84 from the well, criterion I collection i definitely did not have a laser disc i uh, yeah i i had Image entertainment yeah i, remember. I had vhs and I, I i remember renting the vhs tape of it and, and watching it that way i don't think i ever saw it on tv or I may have seen it on TV since then, but I remember the first time I saw it, I definitely rented the videotape. I think the first time I saw it was, it wasn't like in the evening. I, said, I remember being in the afternoon, like on a weekend afternoon. Yeah. I, something like that. And I remember, you know, my father, you know, like during Sunday dinner, like after Sunday dinner, it happened to be on sort of thing, but it wasn't, it wasn't like a big premiere. premiere, premiere no. Like one well, afternoon. no, we would just, but there was just certain movies like The Mummy. I loved The Mummy. Stuff like that, the old mummy. 
And I mean, it would only come on certain times when I was little, because like I said, me and my mother, Saturday, watch Monster Baby yeah, Matinee every Monster Saturday. Movie back home. Huh? Like, well, a Monster Movie Matinee showed a lot of these things. Yeah, but we had to wait for it. That's what made it so cool, though. I mean, yeah. it brings back memories. Every Saturday at one o'clock. What yeah. I used to what I used to do is um, I would scour the TV guide. Like my, when I started getting into movies, my parents got like the, the cable package that would have like all the different movie channels. I'd scour the TV guide. I'd circle the stuff I wanted to see. And I'd set my VCR because a lot of it was while I was at school. So I'd set my VCR on a timer and I'd set the cable box in my bedroom uh, to the channel. And there were a lot of times, like there were like multiple movies I wanted to record in one day because like, um, Channel 55 in New York would like almost always play the old Sherlock Holmes movies. So I wanted to see all those, but the movie channel would have a Vincent Price movie on at 1230. So I like during lunch, I'd call, I'd call home. My mom would be like, Hey, what's going Like, Hey, can you go into my bedroom and change the channel from 55 to 176? <laughs> I want to catch this Vincent Price movie. And I, and I'd have like, I'd set a VHS tape on EP and I'd record all these movies and I'd come home and watch them because, you know, I was on a tight little budget. Uh, back then, my parents would give me three bucks a day for lunch, and I would put that money, uh, I'd uh, put that money away, slip it in my pocket. Uh, it's five days a week, fifteen bucks. What was it? Five? Yeah, something like that. It was three, three bucks because they assume I'd buy two slices of pizza with it. Yeah, um, that's about right. I would skip lunch and I'd go to study hall. And I'd do my homework during my lunch period. Put the put the three dollars they gave me aside every single day and just like keep it till the end of the week. Then I'd go to the Wiz with my using my bus pass on Friday. I'd go to the Wiz. I'd buy a VHS tape or a couple of VHS tapes. Like if like the Universal Monster tapes were like twelve ninety eight each. So the fifteen bucks I'd saved during the week was perfect because I'd buy the Wolfman or I'd buy Dracula or I'd buy this and buy that. And in the meantime, during the week all these blank tapes were recording all these other movies. So I'm just coming home and my parents knew what I was up to because I'd come home at like three, three o'clock, three 30, I'd get home. There'd be a second lunch waiting for me. So they fucking knew. <laughs> and like, I did all my homework or most of it. And then I would just watch like all these old monster movies at the end of the day, because like, that's like what a plan, I, Joe. That's what, like I loved, what I loved and cared about. Like, I didn't care how much, about I have anything. to ask, how much did your VCR weigh? Was it like the 80-pounder? <laughs> uh, my parents had one of those in uh, in the kitchen, and it got to the point where, like, you couldn't play things in black and white or in uh, color anymore. Everything would play in black and white because the VCR's color thing was so screwed up. <laughs> like, you'd put on a movie that just came out, like, last year, but it would be black and white because the color just would not work for, for anything. Um, but yeah, it, it actually kind of helped me bond with my parents too, because like my dad would, would come in and we'd watch like an old Vincent Price movie or an old Sergio Leone Western, or my mom would come in and we'd watch like some old Cary Grant movie. And that's kind of, that's kind of like how my, my, my film education just kind of came to be was just, just watching this stuff because I wanted to take in everything I could. Yeah, my, and King Kong was one of them. Yeah, mine was pretty much the same way. I'd get the old TV guide and, you know, hi highlight or circle everything I wanted to see and what's going to be seen and what times. And, and I mean, my film education was basically with my grandparents and stuff like this, you know. And I think, I, I mean, I'll think about it. I mean, movies kind of bring you together as well. I mean, yeah, 
there are three movies my mom would let me miss school the next day for if they were on. And that would be um, Seven Faces of Dr. Lau. <laughs> of course. And West Side Story. If they were on, then my mom's, I would miss school the next day because I could stay up and late and watch those with her. I would never be allowed to do that. Um, I'd never be allowed to miss school for them. But because they were giving me $3 a day for lunch, I didn't want to miss school. <laughs> so, <laughs> that was a lot of money back in the early in the mid 80s and then late 90s, well, was, 90s then i discovered a video store in my buddy's neighborhood that was selling off a lot of their older movies for like five bucks a pop so all of a sudden that 15 bucks at the end of the week was getting three movies so i was i was really happy they were used but what the hell i didn't care i wanted them. <laughs> i was gonna say before streaming and um i think streaming's kind of ruined things a little bit only for a simple fact is that what was on TV you had to watch. And I just remember like, you know, I'm sure if, you know, if it wasn't for monster movie matinee and the movies that would be on on the weekend. Chiller but, Theater, the thing with the hand. Remember that one? Chill. Or E-bomb, which I yeah, thought that one too. find out since the movie spelled backwards. But I go, E-bomb, <laughs> E-bomb. It's like, yeah. but, um, but it's, you know, but the thing is, is like, you found yourself opening up to so much different stuff because all you had was like three or four channels to begin with. Yeah. And then, you know, then you found yourself, you know, just opening up to all sorts of stuff. Now Let's it's kind of like you really yeah. open up yourself to stuff because you have to look for stuff now. Like if you yes. look for it, you just don't fall upon it sort of thing. And, no, and most of the streaming, I mean, streaming channels anyway don't have anything old on them. Netflix is starting to start, start showing older You're things. getting there. Yeah, we got the Sweeney Sweeney Todd, the barber from Fleet Street from 1945. Um, Netflix. Oh, the Todd oh, is that Netflix? Is that on Netflix? Netflix in this country. It's it's in the public domain, so you could probably find that anywhere here. The Todd Slaughter version of the Demon Barber of uh, Sweeney Todd, you can find that anywhere here now. I haven't and, seen that in so long. Scarlet Street they just put on over here with Joan Bennett, one of the Fritz Langs. Film noir film. I love that. That's the one with Edward G. Robinson. I think also is in that. Yeah. I love that movie. So it looks like Netflix might be opening their stuff for something later than twenty years. So that's quite good. But, well, they need a little more. I mean, it's Netflix just isn't for the young the youngins anymore. Everybody watches Netflix. There's an appetite for everything these days. Well, I mean, the thing is, I think it's okay to cater to it, but I think it's also interesting that you maybe should help let them acknowledge a world that happened before their own decade maybe you know yeah exactly you know yeah. i mean oh i don't like oh i don't like old black and white films have you ever seen one no well how do you know you don't like them no cgi there was uh there's this uh there's this young girl that works with me she's 19 years old she she wants to be a filmmaker and the other day she was telling me she feels like she's the worst aspiring filmmaker because there's so many movies she hasn't seen and i was like well they're there. Yeah. You can go see them. Like you could, you know, it, HBO Max is. I, I. It's a shame that it's it's going through what it is because I think it's the best streaming service out there. What's it going through? <laughs> uh, Discovery and all that stuff is kind of. It, it's going to be gone next year. It's going to be merged into a streaming service with with Discovery. Uh, I don't want that. I love HBO Max. Leave it alone. I hate and, Discovery. They need to the back. The thing it I love off. about it. 
the thing I love about it is it's got all these old. It's base. It's they got Turner years. classic movies. Everything they got all my Batman cartoons. Everything it's got ninety years of cinema history on it. I mean, even more than that because I think I've seen old Charlie Chaplin stuff on there. There but is. I, I remember telling. I remember telling this girl I was like, "There's 125 years of cinema history before you were born. Nobody's expecting you to see all of it, but definitely you check." You guys some of always it out. bring up shit I've never seen. But one of the like, things that one of the things that I love about older movies is obviously I, you know, if I wanted to see, if I want to see the world in 2022, I could walk outside and see the world in 2022. Right. I can't see the world in 1935. These movies are a window to that. And when, and to a degree, you know, even though, you know, like I'm looking right now, I have uh, D.W. Griffith's version of Abraham Lincoln from 1930 right there, uh, sitting right there. And while, okay, it was made 60 years after, you know, 60 plus years after Lincoln died, it is entirely conceivable that there are people working on that movie in 1929, 1930 that were alive in the 1860s. Well, obviously there were people that, that on that movie that were alive in the 1860s. So in, in a way, older movies give you a view of something that you never are going to be able to experience yourself. Well, but You're never going to see the... Yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say, with respect to that, though, when if you watch, um, like, like Tombstone, I mean, all the old, all the old actors carried uh, his body to, to, you know, when they, they buried him, Wyatt Earp's body, you know, because he, when he died, all the early cowboy stars, you know, I mean, that, that I thought was kind of cool, actually, you know, because... You don't think of that really, like the 1930s. These people, a lot of them might have been alive and remember all this shit. That's that, that, that's what I was saying about. So that's about a great the point Lincoln you make. Movie. That's what I was saying about the Abraham Lincoln movie. Some of the people working on that might have been old enough to remember Lincoln. Exactly. So there, there, there's something there that you and I are never going to experience. It and this is a, a window to that. time. It, it really window. is. It's a window to something we're never going to see. It's really living antiquity. It really is. Well, another thing is, even if you go back to King Kong, what was happening around 1933 was zoos were just coming into production. I mean, the first zoo was like 1890s, 1900s. Right. So they're actually operating animals from their homeland and burning them in zoos, which is pretty much affected when you saw King Kong as well. Here they take something from the wild and bring it to civilization and like here it is for human consumption yeah we're, we're putting it on display for you we're holding this creature in chains uh-huh. so that you can see it for your your amusement for an hour or whatever which really does say something even for the human human existence even for 1933 i'm like i love going to zoos but i hate zoos on the same token this- Save them if you've got to save them, but please put them back in their habitat. Don't keep them there, for Christ's sake. I don't know. Well, unfortunately, it's a, a it's, kind of, it's, kind of, it's kind of a weird thing, isn't it? Because zoos, in one way, have saved species. Right. Because of man, personally. Um, but at the same time, because they save them and they're breathing them in captivity, you can't really let them go. <laughs> No. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's sort of like when somebody fought, like the one that pissed me off is this this kid was reaching out. They shot one of the gorillas several, several years back here. Oh, Harambe. Because some dumbass fell into the frigging cage. 
So, you know, do stupid things, get stupid prizes. Now, don't shoot the end. But then she got loose, though. Jakiri, that was her name. And I, it was just, it, they don't belong there. Well, they don't that. want to live in this little ecosystem. Well, it, that's just another tangent you don't want to get me here. More of a version of that sea world. I mean, all those animals are like limp and everything like that. And then look what happened to that poor whale when it ate its trainer. You know, it's like, oh my God, it's not for the world to see, but you know. Well, what did you expect it to do? Likely. It's a wild animal. And what, what did they expect was going to happen when they chained up this, this giant gorilla? And there's the line of that they think you're hurting the girl. Or he thinks you're hurting the girl, and that's what sets off Kong. Yeah, did you notice? Uh, was, what, what was okay? That's the second movie. I'm gonna get my movies screwed up. I gotta shut up. Hold that thought. I mean, the thing is, I mean, you know, Kong's only guilt basically is protecting her, really. Which is everything, yeah. him. Every everything that befalls him is from protecting her, who should not have been there in the first place. Mm-hmm. So right. yeah, it goes back to our saying: Carl Denham is kind of the villain in this piece, in, in a way. Well, for bringing yeah. him back, you know, for I mean, he well, just, just all he saw: we're going to make a million dollars on Kong, the winner of the world. I'll share it with everybody. You know, I mean, look at they were. I mean, seriously, they owed them sailors a lot of back pay for all the shit they did to them. <laughs> I mean, it was probably not what they signed up for, you know, in retrospect. Well, I mean, let's sit there and sit there and say that, let's say Kong or the Abominable Snowman or any of these things end up being real. It, what, what will it, what they, what, let's say the Abominable Snowman, they find out that it's real. What are they going to do with it? They're going to bring it out, show it off, then dissect it. Yeah. <laughs> Stop it yep. and put it in the museum, and then it will travel around the world. Because that's what man does, don't they? Yeah. You know, they have to control everything, and if you know what they can't control, they'll try to dissect. Precisely, and and if you know if it proves to be too problematic for them, they'll kill it. So, what we do? Yep. Yeah. And this poor creature did nothing at all. He was just having a day. They were going to feed him his usual bride. And all of a sudden, these people show up. Obviously, he killed them by shaking, though. I finally figured that out. And this, 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 this is the umpteenth time I've watched this. And you figured it out. Well, I mean, he probably shook him to death. Because, I mean, well, she was screaming so much. Did you actually he finally shook her? It's like, God damn it, shut up. You know? Well, well the- I mean, to be honest, I mean, this is what happens when, you know, anyone falls for a blonde. Just it's <laughs> That's trouble, <laughs> I'm telling you. They were willing to give up six native girls for that blonde. Yeah, right. That's right. But you know what? He actually picked Fay Ray and then they made her wear a really blonde wig to contrast with the gorilla. So yeah. I mean, there was there was I thought Fay Ray was a stunningly beautiful woman. You have to think about how many natives did they, <laughs> they feed up to Kong that he didn't want. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, there's a blonde. Yeah, he fell in love with that. Well, she, I mean, in in that in that world, she stands out. But you yeah. think that? But this is probably somewhere out by New Guinea, where they still had cannibals. You know, probably. Well, they're on their way to Singapore, so it was around that area, apparently. So. Well, I mean, well, like I said, the world still had some mystery in it, which is why Raiders of the Lost Ark probably did so well too, because it's the '30s. I mean, the world was 
really not explored completely, you know, and who explored the world that much back then? Sailors. I mean, they always had the, the cool stories, you know. And Ma Marion C. Cooper was that kind of guy who liked traveling to hear a story. Like he, he, he would go and like hear local, he would travel the world and hear local legends. You don't have that kind of filmmaker anymore. No. Filmmakers now pay homage to filmmakers like that. He was, he was a lot like Ernest Hemingway in a way where he right. just, he's going to go out and he's going to live his adventure. And then he's going to, he's going to come back and tell you about it, which is so, so cool. It is. It really is. Well, I mean, look at the Phantom, the comic strip, the Phantom. I mean, where did the Phantom live? Skull Island. Yeah. Diana and their babies, Friends. whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, Kong, I mean. It still has yeah. a mystique to this day. Well, the good thing about the way he told his story and I, I think that even the 2005 version caught up on that because I think Peter Jackson really, really huge love letter, basically. But I mean, it does kind of take you back. Well, that must have been kind of cool back then because there wasn't really all this, you know, all these people did not habitate all this. Everything was still out there. It was unknown. And it kind of gives you that room to let your mind wander. And that's what makes it such a good film. But then you end up like Ambrose Bierce where you, 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 uh, you disappear with a <laughs> with a bunch of banditos and you never heard from again. That's the that's a flip side of what could happen here. This so, is true. Or you could get eaten. But... You could get eaten. Yeah, and nobody would know. You'd just be gone. Yeah, there's there There's, are cannibal thing I've noticed. there's still cannibal tribes out there, but society has deemed them not to eat people anymore. Which is one of the things I noticed about in watching a lot of movies from the 1930s is that the the idea of just taking off somewhere and disappearing and creating a new life is thematically happens a lot in these movies because I guess well I mean obviously back then it was easier than now nowadays there's so many photos of you already floating around that you know you could be identified but in the 1930s get hop a freighter and go across the country no no one will no one will know who you were and you could just pretend to be somebody else what happened in the during the depression anyway people were leaving to going leaving their families to find work and then yeah. no one ever heard from them again they and had those yeah. they had those halfway house what are singers are those supposed to be donuts remember when mm -hmm. they're standing in the lines you know, she goes, what are they going to have for breakfast? Soup tonight and sinkers and coffee in the morning. What are sinkers? Are they donuts? Probably donuts, yeah. I don't know. Let's look that up. I'll, I'll look it up while you guys talk. <laughs> <laughs> I just wonder what sinkers were because, I mean, you had the bread lines, you had the soup lines, and you had people looking for places to sleep. I'm assuming homelessness was rampant during the Great Depression. Well, yeah, I mean, they, that's, what you had, that's why you had Hooverites. You know, they, they see the cardboard cities. Yeah. People, people were looking for work. I mean, people were traveling. They're homeless. People were traveling across country. People walking without, you know, with no shoes on in the winter and all this stuff. I mean, yeah. it was very bad. I mean, you know, it was going to be, you know, it's bad when basically the day the, um, the crash market, you know, stock market. That basically all these people are jumping onto their buildings and killing themselves. Yeah. Their bodies are littering the streets of New York City because people are killing themselves. So you know uh, it's going to be bad. Yeah. 
A good movie to, that that captures that is uh, Raul Walsh's "The uh, The Roaring Twenties from 1939. But I just looked it up. Uh, sinkers are potato dumplings. Really? Yeah. Sinkers. I learned something new today. I always do when I talk to y'all. I mean, in this case, I didn't know either. We. I was I thinking up, but, donuts. You know. But it, may, it makes sense if you're super poor. You know, yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be potatoes. Yeah. It's not yeah. you know you're not gonna have you know very much protein. It's going to be more, yeah. Yeah, it's going to be starchy carbs. The potatoes. Yeah, just something that'll fill you up, yeah. yeah. And then yeah. came the pierogi, possibly one of New Jersey's best things that it had done for the world. <laughs> I love them things. I'm sorry. <laughs> I guess another kind of thing about Chimpanzee is the ending for a thing because you kind of get, you kind of get so used to, you know, reflecting back on it, but you know, things that we have today is normally like whether it's ET or, you know, where you always find the people who are going to try to help, you know, the outcasts that everyone's after, that they have somewhere to run to. You know, they, and we all, we're so used to seeing them being saved at the end and being gone to wherever. But then you realize that King Kong, there's nowhere for him to even go. Where's he going to go? You know, he's not going to, I mean, he's not going to go running off and out of New York City, went to New Jersey. I mean, he's going to stand out. <laughs> so there's nowhere for him to go, even to be saved or to be rescued. You know, which is kind of sad at the end of the day. And uh, there's also nowhere for Denim to run either. And if uh, if you see Son of Kong, yeah. it opens with him avoiding process servers <laughs> over everything that happens. <laughs> well, I mean, look at all the shit. Well, that's another thing that they they were trying to get out of the movie is the girl in the pajamas that he she's he's holding her upside down and he drops her. They wanted to get rid of that too. That, that was poor, another. I, that I love woman, that shit. That poor woman was doing nothing. She's just in bed. <laughs> yeah, it's just like out, oh, you're not Fay Ray and tosses her. I know. While well, he was doing that with that, well, that was the second one. Just, just you know, that's ain't you. Well, he did it in both of them. Yeah, he but, did it in both. Yeah, he, he, reaches, did. he reaches in, he pulls her out, he looks, ah, it's not her, just chucks her. <laughs> <laughs> this poor woman who's done nothing. She's it's just home. in her bed sleeping. Yeah. <laughs> he dumps her like for what, 80 stories up. But it's it also kind of speaks to the kind of childlike, like you mentioned earlier, he's shaking, you know, he's shaking people. That might be what kills him. He like going back to when he's playing with the T-Rex's mouth. It's this very childlike uh, innocence to him. He he, he's a, he doesn't know his own strength, you know. He's like he's like the little kid that grabs a bird and holds it too hard and accidentally kills it. He doesn't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Son of yeah. Kong, I'm gonna have to watch that again now that you brought that you up. I'm gonna have to watch it. We don't we don't know anything about his family. There's no family. Where's his mom and dad? There had to be one. Yeah, they don't really. The only time you get any backstory on King Kong is the newer King Kong versus Godzilla. That is the only time you got any backstory on Kong. But obviously, his his parents got killed or died or something. Right. Yeah, I think in the the two thousand five, they do give a little bit of a nod about a little bit, not much though. So, well, should we go to the two thousand five? Uh, let's do it. I guess so.
King Kong is a 2005 epic adventure monster film, Coral written, produced, and directed by Peter Jackson. It is the eighth entry in the King Kong franchise and the second remake of the 1933 film of the same title, following the 1976 film. The film stars Andy Serkis, Naomi Watts, Jack Black, and Adrian Brody. Set in 1933, it follows the story of an ambitious filmmaker who progresses his cast and hired ship crew who travels to the mysterious Skull Island. They encounter prehistoric creatures and a legendary giant gorilla known as Kong, whom they capture and take to New York City. Development for the film began in early 1995 when Jackson was offered by Universal Pictures to direct the remake of the original 1933 film, but stalled the project in early 1997. As several ape and giant monster-related films were under production at that time, and Jackson planned to direct the Lord of the Rings film series. As the first two films in the trilogy became commercially successful, Universal approached Jackson in early 2003, expressing his interest to restart development on the project, which he, reached, which he eventually agreed. Filming for King Kong took place in New Zealand from September 2004 to March 2005. is currently one of the most expensive films ever produced as its budget climbed from an initial $150 million to a then record-breaking $207 million. King Kong would premiere at the New York City on December 5th, 2005, and was theatrically released in Germany and the United States on December 14th. The film garnered mostly positive reviews from critics and eventually appeared in several top 10 in 2005. It received praise for the special effects performances, since the spectacle in comparison to the 1933 original, though some of the criticisms were focused on its three foot, sorry, three hour long running time. It was a commercial success and it would gross over 562 million. It would be the fifth highest grossing film of 2005. What we're going to do is cut to the trailer of King Kong for 2005 and we'll be right back. And lo, the beast looked upon the face of beauty. And beauty stayed his hand. And from that day forward, he was as one dead. So you are ready for this voyage, Mistero? Sure. Nervous? Nervous? No. Should I be? Imagine, if you will, an uncharted island. Thought to exist only in myth. Wall! There's a wall ahead! Deserted. Of course it's deserted. Places are ruined. Twenty-four hours, there'll be nothing left to find.
Hello, welcome back to the Trailers Podcast. We're discussing King Kong from 2005. So, Vix, what are your thoughts of this film? This is just a fun monster movie, and you can tell anybody that worked on this movie must have had fun doing it. That's the only thing I can figure. And then after talking to Joe or texting back, bantering back and forth to Joe, and he always brings up stuff that I didn't know about. You know, I didn't know about the the, the how the he did the claymation and brought back that stuff. I mean, he, he was just, I just find it after watching his first movie and then seeing all the brilliance that came after that, I would have never expected it. Let's just put it that way. You know, the Lord of the Rings, this movie, just about anything he touches is just gold when it comes to, you know, the premise of the movie, the, the special effects. And I really, this one I thought, other than the 33, is probably my favorite King Kong movie like we were talking shortly about the, the Jessica Lang version and stuff and I really didn't get too inspired to watch this near as much that I love Jessica Lang don't get me wrong but this one is I liked how Naomi Watts kind of humanizes King Kong and they realize this poor animal has been taking out of his home he's been brought here against his will and you know let's face it humanity sucks we suck as a species on this planet and you just got to, all of your empathy goes to the gorilla. I mean, seriously, he's the good guy in this whole thing. And then, you know, Jack Black, I'm sorry, but there's something about him. And I mean, a lot of people probably love him. But something about him just grates on me the wrong way. And I don't know why. He's probably a nice guy. Maybe you two even know him. I don't know. But I mean, he just seems like he would sell out anybody for a percentage, especially in this movie. Or, I mean, maybe it's because I'm thinking of him with uh, in that movie with uh, Rosemary. Was it Rosemary? <coughs> where, where, she, where he thinks that she, she's, he's hit Tony. Um, oh my God, the, the, the speaker gets to uh, Jack Black in that movie and makes him think that his girlfriend is skinny and beautiful. Boy, and it's such oh, a shallow how? Yeah, it's such a shallow movie. And I think that that part of him in that movie, it's stuck in my brain with anything else he's been in. Shallow hell, yeah, that movie. Definitely shallow. But I mean, in this movie, though, he doesn't seem any, he doesn't have any, what's the word, remorse for what he's done. Yeah. And somebody says in the movie, he goes, he kills everything he loves. You know, when, 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 I mean, he sacrifices his friends. He doesn't care how many people die trying to get this gorilla to where he needed to be. Actually, it's his fault that Naomi Watts, you know, they take her anyway. And both, in every film, it's all his fault. It's you know, it's Denim's fault. Yeah. It's him. He's the catalyst for all of this, this stuff going on. And I just thought that this one, I like the humanizing. I hate saying the word humanizing. But it gives the animal uh, some kind of precedence as to this really isn't my fault. I didn't want to be here. And Naomi Watts, especially when they're in Central Park and he discovers ice and they're sliding on the ice. Probably one of the most, you know, I mean, he's here's this big, bad, mean ape that's throwing cars and women all over the place because they don't blonde enough or they don't look like Naomi Watts. But I mean, I, I love this movie. I don't even know how to put it in some kind of contextual order, but it, it's just, it's the 1933 version brought to colorized life and with all the extra goodies. Well, I'm, I'm glad they didn't try to modernize it because I don't know that- Exactly. That it would have well, worked. Well, they even had the RKO logo. They still had RKO logo. They still used the old uh, music from like, you know, when the, 
when the uh, natives in the old movie were dancing and doing the dance Kong and all that. He kept all of that. And then you had the, the, the monsters in the, the, the cliff, you know, that they fell to, the spider. I hate them things, man. I just hate bugs. And so he got to me. <laughs> like, I don't know if the, if the Kong origin story can be told in the modern time, because even in Kong Skull Island. You can't. Uh, Kong Skull Island is set in like the 70s. Yeah. So I, I think um, I think it's it's something that's kind of specific to a time period. I think it works best in the 1930s because, like we were the talking mystery. about earlier, there was that kind of mystique about the world because we hadn't uh, explored so much of it. Um, but one thing you mentioned the you know the portrayal of Carl Denham in this movie, and yeah, it does feel like while in the 1933 one, they're both idealistic. They're right. both idealistic filmmakers slash artists who just want to in this version it he just comes off like such a scumbag in the 2005 version especially like, this version he was a doable gentleman cad in the 33 version but there's just i mean he just rips everybody off in this one he doesn't have money he forces that uh, driscoll to stay on the boat he doesn't know it's by waiting. stalling him while the boat takes off he's so writing he's bad checks left and right <laughs> you know? yeah yeah, sitting sit there, oh, the, the check, yeah, yeah. He's writing checks that he knows he can't cash. He, like, literally, he's writing him a check that he knows he won't be able to cover. So, yeah, he's portrayed here as so much more of a scumbag than he is in the other movie. Um, and the other thing, you mentioned Naomi Watts. She's basically acting by herself in this entire fucking movie. She is. She like is. All those a lot of people don't think of that. I didn't. All those scenes of Kong, she's she's working against something that isn't there, she and she's giving this great performance. So hats off to Naomi Watts for that. Well, just watching her tear up, I just love watching her face, and she put she really did do well with the emotion and reaching people in the audience. I felt because she kept looking at him like God, he's not so bad after all. Except yeah. when he keeps pushing her and then finally she's really sick of his shit and lets him have it. But I mean, he was like a big spoiled baby, you know, for, he was a, he was a primate. They are very intelligent animals and they understand things. Sort of like, you know, where he's beautiful. He understood sign language and you kind of get that across. He understood that, that he comprehended what she was trying to tell him. So I just thought it was just freaking neat. As, I just loved how they portrayed all this in the 2000s. It's, I mean, I have to just say, I suppose what I said before is, it's. I think if you take an, it's if you take an original movie and you're going to remake it, I think you have to make like a love letter to that. Oh, this was definitely it. You know, where they think, oh, we can do something better. Oh, we can do this better. Put my stamp on the, and it always seems to fail a bit. But if someone does a love letter to it, they can, they can, you know, embrace it, and also they can, you know, they can elongate and put their stamp on it but at the same time make sure that you still have the heart and the feeling of the original and i think this is where the stone does really well but it does ramp up the emotions and it does ramp up but it also ramps up like the spectacle but the thing is you actually he spends so much time i mean this film's done in three acts isn't it first right. act murder character second act skull island third act the, the finale Steady. Yeah. But by the time you get by the time you get to Skull Island, you know every single little character. I mean, Jamie Bell's character, who would end up, you know, he was Billy Elliot, but um, he's turning into quite a decent adult actor now. Um, I mean, Peter Jackson to be able to rein in Jack Black's performance is quite a because this is Jack Black 
actually giving us a good performance. He's not doing a Jack Black, Jack Black performance. No, he's not. He, uh, I thought yeah. he did a good job, but I mean, his, his, his other movies kind of stuck in my mind, preceded him at this point in my head. But I did like mm -hmm. how they, they kept, they did keep it like, like where they were, he couldn't find a girl, like say for this, the ship to, to put it. And he goes, is Favre available? Oh, she's working for RKO right now. Do it for RKO. I love that shit. I love that little, you know, that, that little, you know, just how they inserted that in there. I just thought it was cool. All the little Easter eggs they had in there. Yeah. One that I noticed was, uh, what was uh, the character's name? Billy Baxter, the, uh, the actor. Yeah. Or, oh, yeah. Uh, oh, wait. I, I, I was wondering if that was actually um, a take on Warner Baxter, who was the highest paid actor in Hollywood during that time period. I thought about that too, as far as- He, uh, he had won the Academy Award and, in like in the thirties, he, he was the highest paid actor. And he was in a lot of adventure movies in the thirties. I bet you he was, I bet you that's what it is. And I'm wondering, if, I that was was, wondering that. if that name was just a nod to him, um, just because maybe Peter Jackson just, I mean, likes, uh, likes Warner Baxter, likes his movies. I, I, I can't, like, I, I looked and I can't find anything to substantiate that. I just, it, it's just, it crosses my mind because you have this guy who's a big star coming in with the last name Baxter. Kind of, kind of made me wonder. Uh, the other thing is just the casting of Naomi Watts. It feels appropriate because like Fay Ray, right before King Kong had done like this, like these, uh, this slew of, uh, of monster movies like Mystery of the Wax Museum, um, Naomi Watts was coming off of uh, really great, you know, horror movies like yeah. Mulholland Drive and The Ring. Yeah. So she was kind of the big scream queen of the time. If there was, I mean, I don't know that you could really say there was a scream queen in 2000, in the early 2000s, because I, I feel like that, that era had already passed. But right. she's probably as close as we were going to get, at least on a mainstream level. Like she was this generation, like she may be this generation's Faye Ray or Jamie Lee Curtis. And it, it seems wholly appropriate that she would be the one to take on the Fay Ray role. Well, she actually she does fit the bill physically too, as well. Because I mean, Naomi, I mean Jamie Lee Curtis is good. I'm not saying anything against her, but Naomi Watts is acting. No matter what she does, is phenomenal. Yes, she's one of the best actresses alive today. She is by far. I actually want to check out her 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 new movie where she's uh, she's stuck on a mountain by herself during a storm. But like this is going to be. What was the name of that? I don't. I mean, it's if you look it up, it's her latest movie. Is it movie. Alone I don't or something? I can't remember. I, I wanted to watch it too, and I haven't had a chance to see it. But, uh, but I just go on IMDb. Just I just liked how they made her a vaudeville actress, and I love how they brought the Great Depression to life in it. And you know yeah. how she really, she knows Jet uh, Driscoll's, his whole screenplay. She knows all of his stuff, you know? I mean, she was perfect. And right does she, and she bounced, and they played, well, her and Denim kind of bounce off each other really well because he's lost his moral compass in this movie where she has one. So. Yeah. Well, yeah, another thing is, I think what um, they found as well, which is quite interesting is, because by 2005, you kind of had to have a female that was quite a strong character, not just a victim. And yep. I think- Exactly. And Daryl here, and the way Naomi Watts plays her, she's like the every girl, the every person, the person you can resent, um, you can feel everything through. Because I mean, let's face it, you feel everything through you know, her character. But at the same time, she's strong, but she's not weak. She's not, you know what I mean? And that's, 
you know, that's a hard, that's a really hard balance to play, especially if right. you're dealing with something back, in, you know, that's a period piece and being able to bring the 2005 value of what a female will be in 1933, meanwhile, not losing, you know, because I mean, let's face it, she was the screaming queen that Faye Ray was and the full of victory. It wouldn't be that, I don't think that would have played as well in 2005 because that's no, everyone, everyone would have came out. Oh my God, you know what I mean? It's like, She's strong, but at the same time, but they, he, Peter Jackson was able to do that through different things, like you know when he when she's getting to know Kong, Kong and she's doing her vaudeville act in front of him and little things like that to help humanize him. But in the same fact, you know, get her to like taking it, taking control of the situation at the same time. Which I I, I love that sequence where she's doing all her, her little the vaudeville, vaudeville stuff. Act. But uh, but also, and I, I actually just thought about this. I'd um. I I don't remember if it was on the it was on one of the documentaries on Mulholland Drive. She basically lived that life where she where like I think right before Mulholland Drive, she was about to quit acting because she was like, I was out in L.A. and it just wasn't happening. It wasn't working for me. Uh, a friend of mine suggested I go to this. I go to this audition for this uh, for David Lynch. And she went and he absolutely he absolutely loved her, loved her personality, loved her look. And she became a star. And that's so she's kind of her and Darrow in the in this movie has the arc that Naomi Watts's life had. Right. But, so I think it kind of it kind of works out perfectly in that way that she just took a chance because uh, somebody somebody in this movie tells her, hey, look, go go talk to this guy. And then a chance meeting, which you you hear about all the time in the 30s used to happen, right. you know, a chance meeting at the studio commissary, you know, le- led to someone casting someone who then became a massive star um, what's up Lana turner at swabs yeah um so it, it's kind of it's kind of appropriate that she that she ended up again naomi watts naomi watts's casting was absolutely perfect in this because of that she could probably channel that emotion of i'm you know i'm a starving artist who's working in what i want to do but it's not working out. And that kind of crushing defeat and heartbreak of shit, I might have to let go of my dream and go back, you know, go back home because her, her mentor just, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to go back to Chicago. He's leaving me. I'm just going to go back to Chicago. I can't do this. I can't hack it. So she's probably the perfect person for that too, because she went through it. I think I, I think what I like about this as well, that Peter Jackson also adds a little bit, of like background so he doesn't you know it's a bit like when i talk about kong's family but then you have that scene where he's bringing her Skeleton. back where he lives and then you know as the sun's coming up or kind of going down can't remember but if you see like there's great big gorilla skulls yeah yeah but what happened to all of them i mean it's like god you know it's like i, I still there's never enough backstory by the ever Locals, who's 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 to tell? I mean, it, it didn't like the it wasn't the perfectly safe um, island to live on, is it? <laughs> no, matter what no. it looks like it had all kinds of things going on with it. But, I mean, I like the I like the, <laughs> I like what he did with the monsters, though. I mean, I thought it was just it's just good clean fun. The thing about the the island in this one is like I felt like 
it, I felt like it became like an Italian cannibal movie, like for a few <laughs> minutes there, like, like, like guest directed by Ruggiero Diodato or Umberto Lenzi. <laughs> you think like a suddenly, cannibal holocaust? Or, suddenly, or... yeah, they're just attacking and killing and maiming the crew. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's like when you watch the begin- when you watch all that, you're like, oh my god, this is quite. Strange. But I think it works really well for when they recreate it on stage, and then you have. <laughs> cannibal dancers <laughs> so i thought that was quite clever because i think it's our first month ago god these, these are people are really sad. oh my god you know this is quite horrendous like they're beheading the guy and so on and so forth but then when you but then when you see the like and then you get like the payoff at the end when they're doing the, the broadway version of it and he's <laughs> dancing and, and it reminds me like what hollywood did with those kind of tribal things when like the tribal dancing that would go on the 1930s and 40s movies that's what they did yeah so it, it, it's it's pretty perfect like if you watch some of the uh oh my god and I, I feel like this movie it wasn't just a love letter to king kong it was a love letter i think also to the, the the old tarzan movies and stuff like that if you've seen some of those you'll see a lot of little little nods to that i think peter jackson is just somebody who you know just loved old movies and he just felt like he could he could do this love letter to them like if you've seen enough jungle pictures you know enough about like what Peter Jackson was going for, and I absolutely adore it here. I have to and wonder yet, in 1933 because things were. I mean, we talk about racism. I try to avoid the subject as much as possible. But I mean, how do you put an ad out for the, all those black extras back in the day? I, you know? I mean, you just. They, I mean, a lot of people were under contract to a studio back then, so you show they up. They just had regular color. Yeah, people you just show just up and be like, oh. Today, uh, today I'm working on. I'm working at, uh, you know, Studio B. What's the movie? Oh yeah, and that's it. Like that's that's the way a lot of it was. You were you were under contract. They just sent you to wherever. Because I believe the guy in 1932. I cannot remember his whole name, but the character, the the, the not the Cannibal King. You guys got me on cannibals, but his name was Noble. I cannot remember his last name, but that's kind of a cool name. And I just I was just I. I meant to bring that up earlier because they did say that it did have its class of you know iffy referendum for 1933 and it seems like we kind of broke away from that in the 2005 one well, well the 2005 one they portrayed it as like ah, the, these these fucking producers don't know what they're doing anyway and they're just they're just <laughs> they're just creating schlock <laughs> yeah. that's the way they got around it was yeah. ah, these, these producers are idiots film. You know, film in this time period, it was a, a way of escapism. And anyway, they weren't like documentaries of what, I mean, even if you watch like Casablanca, I mean, Casablanca is nothing like Casablanca. You no, know? of course not. You know, and it's like, you know, it's an, it's an idealized picture version of it because, you know, you also have to remember that they were, they, none of these films are, I mean, they're all filmed in a studio. They weren't right. doing any. They're not, you know, they're not going out on location anywhere, so they don't have to reproduce all this stuff because the cameras didn't do any, they couldn't do on set, on location stuff, really. So, you know, so I guess, you know, you have a little bit of that. Plus, you know, you know, you couldn't just, you know, there's not a lot of documentation of exactly, you know, you like you read about it and then you have to like picture what, you know, in your mind what this is and then reproduce it. You know, I don't know if there's a lot of stock footage that you can actually refer back to in those days. This won quite a few awards, though. This this particular one, probably special effects. Cinematography did very well. Yeah, um, 
Uh, uh, editing, uh, mixing, visual effects. They were nominated for a shit ton too. Best probably did really well at stuff won. like the Saturn Awards. Probably did really well there. Yeah, he did. Best, he got best director. I'm trying to see what what he. And I, I think we also probably should should talk about Andy Serkis because he. Oh yeah. So you know he was also Golem. Well, um, so basically his facial expressions are Kong's facial expressions. Sort of thing, and the whole the whole way Kong acting—that's him. That's Andy Serkirk in a bodysuit. No great. kidding. Yeah. And then blown up, yeah. yeah. That's neat. I didn't know that. Yeah, and yeah, I think is... I think that's what makes this work as well, especially like the part where you know he, he's trying to ignore her and the look on his face, and he's looking over at her when she's doing her thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's turned cold shoulder onto her, and, and some, this stuff, yeah. Yeah, and some of the you know the authentic expressions that you get and the feelings that you get are probably down to him really well they said Faye ray that he asked Faye ray to um appear in a brief cameo it said in a role that she would other films final line it was beauty that killed the beast i guess she refused then she considered but sadly she died after her meeting with jackson so that never came to fruition that would have put a definite spin on things i well, guess at this point Faye ray would Faye ray i think when she died she was like 97 98 years old so how much would you have been able to really like legitimately get out of her at that point well, she, like, i think she was still pretty crisp i see my mother's going on 91 and their brains are full on well so. I, I i don't mean i don't mean performance i just mean health wise like how, well, how yeah she was in her late 90s like how how well could she have really like done at that point like just physically being able to well as a cameo i doubt it would have been extremely well, I think, taxing I think, it, I think it depends though i think it also depends on how you want people to remember you as well you have that i mean if you look at jonathan fred and let's say the dark shadows movie he looks right. like he's about to die which he died like three months later yeah you know, and he looked really or or, or if you like gloria stewart titanic i mean she, she was well i mean she you know she was healthy and you know it actually boosted her career betty you know betty white's one of those people that looked fantastic until the day she died right. i saw peggy lee in concert after the stroke and she could only sing fever out of one side of her face trust me i didn't probably i probably would have lived without seeing that you know what i mean so i also think it depends on you know if hey if a ray was like healthy she can walk out on her own fine but if you have to be wheeled out in a wheelchair she might not want people to remember her that way that could be it too. She was really a brunette. That's why, well, well, Faye Ray was. I don't know. I see so many similarities between Faye Ray and Naomi Watts in this movie. I mean, I really think yeah. they, they. I think she, I think Naomi Watts was the perfect person uh, for for the time period. Definitely, Faye Ray. Um, uh, Faye Ray obviously for 1933 turned out to be perfect. Naomi Watts for 2005 absolutely turned out to be the perfect choice. I think this film's got perfect casting as well. I don't think they it does. It does because you, you, Jack Black is able to give enough of a enough sensitivity to it. But at the end of the day, Carl Denham in this is a fucking goof. Yes, you know he he's an idealistic goof, but he's he's more more of a goof in this movie than he is in the nineteen thirty three version. Um, and. I totally get the idealism. I totally get the, you know, the, but at the expense of human life, which he kept telling everybody, well, we're going to finish this movie in tribute to 
with, you know, whichever character died. He, he said that he said that line like three, like two, three, four times. We're, we're going to finish this movie so that we can pay tribute to him. And, and I'm going to send the, the proceeds to his family. I'm He's trying to figure idiot. out how Faye Ray didn't have achieved more stardom than what well, she the, did. But the, the funniest thing about when you say that, if you think about John Landis and Twilight Zone. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He, he said shit like that as well. Yeah. We're going to finish this film and it'll be a testament to the, these two orphans that died. You know, so maybe Jack, maybe, maybe that Jack Black was saying that because of the John Landis case or Twilight Zone. There were, uh, may, maybe, there's people that I, uh, like, a lot of the people that I know in Hollywood, uh, the older people, knew Vic Morrow. And I don't want to mention any names, but one, one friend of mine in particular said, I, you know, fuck, fuck John Landis. He's a murderer. He killed my friend. That's what general consensus was back then. So, I mean. But, but when John Landis was asked about it, just, I mean, for the court case about it, he said, well, we got the film made and it'll be a dedication to the memory. That's kind of cold. Well, it's you not think it's a little cold? It's not it's King Kong, though, is it? <laughs> maybe, maybe part of it was Peter Jackson's statement on that. Maybe could be. I mean, I a thing that you say about Peter Jackson is that he does love film. You can tell that he loves what he does. Oh God, yeah. You know, and he's dedicated. I mean, even if I mean, look at the Lord of the Rings series. I mean, well, not, yeah, it's like probably one of the most brilliant pieces of storytelling in cinema I've ever seen. And that's just my personal opinion because I'm partial. But if it's got his name on it, I will watch it. But even when, when you look at any of his movies, when you for Disney, the um, if you're a huge Beatles fan and he wants to get back documentary, that's him. He put all that together. The huge love letter to the Beatles is documentary. You know, putting it together, making sure that it's digitized, cleaning up every single print and every single sound that took seven years to do. He did it. And he's dedicated. Uh, yeah. That's that's who he is. He's he's yeah. like uh did we watch what did we watch? Was it bad taste that we watched or was it bad taste? Like, it... When you consider like that movie had no money. This guy is out there making things that he wants to make and he's he's a he's storyteller. A guy, He's extremely dedicated to his craft, and uh, in in this movie, he wanted to he wanted to show us his love for classic uh, classic horror. So I absolutely, as someone like me, I appreciate that because I appreciate anybody who loves uh, <clears throat> who loves the old horror movies. Um, but yeah, he's 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 a phenomenal filmmaker. He's he's able to do things that a lot of people aren't able to do. I mean, with this, he had he had a huge budget, but he's yeah, his, his dedication just to the craft in general just amazes me because he will work on something for a decade if he if he wants to do it. And if you look at what he does, I mean, everything's so different. I mean, you look at Bad Taste, his first film, then Meet the Feebles, which is a totally different game. Of course, on um, Brain Dead, we have that on top of that. Then Frighteners. Michael J. Fox and D. Wallace Stone and Heavenly Creatures. Heavenly Creatures. Lovely Bones, which will be covering. Um, I love the Lovely Bones. I thought just because of the title, I was not going to give it a chance because I thought that was, but I started watching it and I could not stop watching it. 
He's a, I think he's one of these directors. I don't think he does it. You can tell he doesn't have the money. You know, he does, he does it because I'm, I'm doing it because this is, I have a love for what I want to do. I, he's a, he loves to tell stories. That is so, you could just tell. I mean, you could, directors come and go. God knows there's, there's so many of them out there, but he's, he's a great storyteller. He just is. But he's, Any he's, of his movies. He seems like a, a director that has to be emotionally invested in what he's doing, though. He doesn't. Well, look at Lord of the Rings. Oh my God! I mean, th that just—what an undertaking, for one. Mm. You know, and everything that went into it. I mean, he doesn't even put his name on anything either, unless he's done it himself as well. You know, you don't see a Peter Jackson production, or you know, not like Del Toro. You know, like you'll see like a, something that have Del Toro's name all over it. And, he hasn't directed it. You know what I mean? He's just helped produce it or helped get it made. Or John Carpenter. <laughs> John Carpenter. He had to have his name. It's John Carpenter. <laughs> well, John Carpenter only puts his name above the title if he directs it. Right. But he's he's helped produce it. Wes Craven did that a lot too, though. He, what, Wes, he? Craven, Wes Craven Presents means it was yes. not directed by Wes Craven. Yeah. yeah. So there's quite a few of those sort of thing. So, but yeah, I mean, and I also like I also like the added touches that Peter Jackson has, and that's why you know, that's you know said before the ice the ice skating scene just before Kong dies is kind of like a love letter to Kong before the inevitable happening. Oh, it's just the way he puts her back down. I think they're are they on the world are they on, are they still on the Empire State Building or is it the Chrysler Building in this? I forget. Empire State Building. Empire State Building. Okay, just the way he puts her down and he's just looking at her, and then it's just it's just so sad. It's that last scene is so emotional. It is. Like, I can't believe this isn't even real. <laughs> it's so full of emotion because you don't get that in previous King Kongs. You just don't. Not like that. I think you do get it in the 33 one, but not to the level that you get it here. Yeah, <laughs> like, well, it wasn't reciprocated. She understood him and didn't think of him as a monster anymore. She saw it as a, a sentient creature. You know, which you don't get that from Fay Ray. No. Well, you know, you know, the, thing is, is that the even though I love King Kong in the 33 version, that you are very limited with the technology you have about bringing the facial expressions. And that's true. That's true. His eyes were glass. His face was plastic. They had to keep running that under a fan because he kept melting in 1933, I guess. Well, but it, it was it was a totally challenged thing. Ray <laughs> Ray sometimes is real and sometimes she is a 3D model herself as well. She had right. time because of technology things. So, you know, here we got a person behind the face of Kong as well. And then we also got Naomi Watts being able to be on screen all the time with the Kong, you know, and giving her performance. So we don't need a, you know, when we don't a 3D model her being thrown back and forth or stuff like this. This is actually Naomi Watts thrown back and forth or whatever, you know. What about the chase where she got where like they realized that this well talk about throwing women. Me and Joe were talking that prior. Like he's just tossing bitches everywhere because they don't look they're not her. Like the one nobody even cares to get the one in, in the audience in the uh theater just loosen her ropes up so she can get away from enraged animal. You know, no, they leave her there. <laughs> That's that's the thing that that uh, I, I was I was gonna bring up is that the way um, 
in this version more than more than any other you see how gentle he is with uh with andero what with naomi uh, naomi watts's andero versus and, and because fly. of her reciprocation but with everyone else he's just like yep not, no you're not her or wait the best the best eye contact in the movies when he sees jack Driscoll again Oh, you know, yeah. he sees it because you. <laughs> he starts. You're the one who's trying to steal my it. woman. I know, it's you. That moment of recognition. It's just like, well, here we go. Well, we also get the whole thing about, um, you know, I love the part where like the people are coming after the army is coming after. And he, that guy gives a great big speech. And this is New York made for people, for people. And then they get crashed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, but. By the way, I, I didn't bring this up in the 33 version. Uh, in both films, the uh, the pilot who eventually kills King Kong, in this one, it's Peter Jackson. Um, in the original, it's uh, Marion C. Cooper and Shodbeck as what the, uh, in the planes. Yeah. In both in both movies, the yeah, director is the one that kills that. Kong in the end, which is super cool, I think. And Yeah, it is. Uh, uh, as for the 1933 version, uh, supposedly Marion C. Cooper said, well, we spent so much time, uh, so much time giving it life. We might as well be the ones to kill the bastard. Yeah. And I don't know if Peter Jackson did it as an homage to that or just because like, hey, this is this is cool. I get to be the one that kills King Kong. <laughs> but knowing Jackson uh, or knowing how, how much Jackson loves uh, loves these old horror movies, he probably knew that and probably went, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm going to pay homage to that by being uh, being the one who shoots down Kong. Well, I imagine he, I imagine he probably knew that. He seemed to, he seemed to do a lot of research and preparation before he even started filming this. So. He oh, had he lots probably, of time. Peter Jackson probably forgot more about King Kong than the three of us combined know. Yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah, he's, he, he, he clearly loves the 33 movie and you know, I'm glad he, he got kept to do this. so much of it. There was so much of this, the essence of the 33 movie brought to life in this one. I mean, so. if you really think about it, the only thing that we got a lot more of were monster fight sequences, right? Uh, and, and just like a lot of these action sequences. I remember at one point I was texting a, another friend of mine out, out, out here in Chicago that has a podcast, and I was like, Was this script like 20 pages long? Because half this movie is they're running away from shit. Yeah, and it's just like it's just like a it's just like a three minute sequence here of them running away, three minute sequence here of them fighting these these bugs in a cave, a three minute sequence of you know uh, Naomi Watts dancing. And I liked her. I liked her it when she's when she gets into the trunk, the the dead tree trunk with the centipedes, and and then all of a sudden there's like don't move nobody i always think jurassic park when i see that one scene don't nobody move <laughs> where she's the other she's got the and then you got the dinosaurs on the vines and everybody's swinging and you know they're trying to avoid the dinosaurs swinging back and forth that would have been one of the, the most fun monster movie scenes i've ever seen absolutely it's where everybody's it's, swinging and they're trying and then she gets on the t-rex's mouth and is hanging on to his nostrils i mean you know, it's all bullocks, but it's great. <laughs> you know? it's, it's fantastic. It's awesome to watch. Yeah. It just makes you smile. It just does. I mean, I, I feel bad for people who don't like cinema right now. 
Well, um, I think another thing this film does, which is totally, is that you know, let's we you get an hour of building character before you even get to Skull Island, really. You yeah. Know, they build up all the characters. You got you know, by the time you get to Skull Island, you know, you know who Colin Hanks' character is. You know who Jamie Bell's character is. You know who the captain of the ship is. Baxter. Well, what an know. asshole. He's, 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 he's perfect in that role, too. Just like, I'm so, so glad he redeemed himself in Godzilla because they made him look to be like a pussy ass in this one where he's scared of everything. Yet he plays the Clark Gable-ish kind of swashbuckling hero, you know? I mean, I love him in this. Well, he does have that line of dialogue where he says, Here, real heroes don't look like me. Yeah. So there, there, there is that there is that line of dialogue in there where he kind of accepts like, no, dude, look, I'm not a real hero. I'm an yeah. actor portraying a hero. A hero. Yeah. He was great. He, his part in this was really good. I mean, it was, like, it was it was it was fun. He was a fun person to watch in this whole movie. Like Keith said, the casting of just about everybody in this was was pretty spot on and perfect. Yeah, I'm trying uh, to think of one person that people. was casted I didn't like. I love the captain. I love him. Yeah. Even like the um, third and fourth characters that really don't mean anything, they're well drawn. I mean, the, the movie, yeah. you know, those people, you know. Um, I did, um, out of curiosity, I did time in the uh in all three versions of king kong in the 33 version kong shows up for i want to say 44 minutes in the 76 one it's like 47 48 minutes in in the peter jackson uh version in 2005 it's like an hour and four minutes in right so yeah they, but I mean, he did such a good job setting up at least you know if you watch the extended version it all makes sense you know i mean he set this up extremely well you weren't bored you really got vested with characters i'm talking about me i mean i'm, I'm pretty sure you guys did too but he, he was brilliant at setting up the whole story yeah we get we get two hours of king kong in this 2005 version yeah we get two hours of kong on on screen um in the original version i think it's like 96 minutes and he doesn't show up until 48 minutes in so you get a lot more and i feel like if the uh if the filmmakers the original one were alive they would they, they would be like oh my god this is what we wanted to this is what we envisioned it would be exactly. and it's a shame that Faye ray didn't live uh didn't live another uh when she died like 2004 it's a shame she didn't live another two years so she could have seen it when did she die i just that was i was just reading she she really i was surprised that she didn't uh didn't achieve more I mean, I think at that point, like after, after this, what was it before? No, Vampire Bat was before this. Yeah, I think it's just she kind of peaked with, with with this movie. I mean, it's not that she didn't. It's not that she didn't have a career after this. Yeah, two thousand four, August eighth, two thousand four. Yeah, so over a year before this movie came out. So, I mean, she yeah. she did have a career. It's just, I guess she she kind of maybe moved up into the bigger studios she was just one happened. of my favorite old actresses though i mean i like watching her and other stuff uh check out the most dangerous game yeah seen that. Check she's out eve isn't she that. she huh? plays eve in the most dangerous game doesn't she yeah, yeah. she's the lead um i don't I, I don't remember the it's been a while since i've seen i don't remember the character's name i haven't seen the old version in eons well, the thing is, is Faye Ray, there's a bunch of actresses going for the same roles at the same time. Gloria Stewart and her were against each right. other. Right. 
Well, Gloria Stewart was Universal's uh, Universal's uh, Scream Queen at this point because she'd done The Old Dark House and The Invisible Man. That's so she, right. That's right. I think she was in The Secret of the Blue Room around that. I don't remember if that was her or not. I haven't seen The Secret of the Blue Room in a bit. But they are all um, like Faye Reyes kind of characters as well, you know? So you had this person at this studio doing these, you had Faye Ray at this studio doing this, and you had another Faye Ray was doing, was doing all this stuff at Warner that Gloria Stewart was doing for Universal. Yeah. Okay, okay. And, then, so, and then if you look at them, they're almost interchangeable characters, really. They could be. Uh, yeah. But, oh, yeah, Dr. X was before, uh, was before King Kong. She was born uh, in, like, 1907, wasn't she? Yeah, yeah she's, she, she was, was fairly young. When she, she made this very movie. long life. Uh, she looked yeah, good but... right up until she died. She was still an attractive lady. She 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 kept her looks. Yeah, as I'm as I'm looking over her movies, uh, yeah, King Kong was yeah. It was after the Vampire Bat, after the Most Dangerous. Well, the Most Dangerous Game was filmed after King Kong, but it came out before King Kong. Uh, Mystery of the Wax Museum, Doctor X. She was in Mystery of the Wax Museum? Yeah, the original version of, um, was? of House of Wax, yeah. Yeah, her and Lionel Atwell made a lot of horror movies together in the early 30s. Shit. I don't know, I just don't remember her in that. Now I hope it's on Turner, because now I'm going to have to look for it. It's probably on, it's probably on, on HBO Max. Probably. HBO's got all kinds of good stuff, and now and I'm really actually, upset because you told um, me that might not be anymore. Well, we don't know. We'll, we'll see in a year what happens with that. Um, uh, Mystery of the Wax Museum, actually, I don't know if it's on, if it's on HBO Max. I don't know if it's that recently uh, UCLA and the Warner Archives uh, remastered the whole thing and it put is. it out on Blu-ray. And it looks beautiful. Like the versions that we saw, and they did it for Dr. X, too. Uh, the versions that we would see on TV growing up were super washed out these right. you, the colors are popping off the screen and it was done in that um um uh what was uh shoot what was that that early color called keith you might be able to help me check, with this. Uh, pan, pan, wait check the color not check the color uh before that even uh yeah, it was oh my there were so many i cannot think of the people yeah, yeah the, the colors on these versions if, if they i hope I hope HBO Max has has the restored versions because the colors are popping off the screen. They don't look washed out like they did when we were kids. The movies look phenomenal now. Because I think they did the Bluebird this in that, that same kind of colorized thing, wasn't it? The Shirley Temple one. Yeah. Uh, the, something else. Two, okay, was it two stripped or the two color thing? I don't remember what it was called. But if uh, if anybody listening to that, if you want to see more of Faye Ray the best time to see Dr. X and mystery of the wax museum are now because they look probably as good as they did in the 1930s and obviously see the most dangerous game because it's, it's a phenomenal movie too. Uh, the vampire bat, not as good as the others, but what oh, the hell? it is on HBO. Well, now I got something to do with the rest of my afternoon. I was going to be productive. <laughs> I hope I hope that the version that's on HBO Max is the restored version. I have the Blu-rays of both of them. It looks like it. Uh, hopefully, it's a version where like it's actually it like they look phenomenal now. Yeah, it looks like it. I mean, the thing about King Kong thirty-three or this one, I guess the thing to remember is King Kong is always going to be a part of you know a pop culture, isn't it? I mean, 
it would reappear in Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah. And contribute to that. Um, Bette Midler did in her live concert once where she, you know, she opens up it and she's in the palm of King Kong's hand. I didn't know that. All right. That's cool. Mickey Armstein, Mickey Armstein, Mickey Armstein. <laughs> um, so, I mean, yeah. It, King Kong know, never really, I don't know. Pop culture lies. I don't know if it ever stopped being relevant, but I mean, even in the 60s, uh, it's King never Kong stopped being relevant. Stolen. I don't think it's ever stopped being relevant. It's it stands the test of time, probably more than any other monster movie made in that time period, and that's including no, no matter how much I love them, and that's including the the Universal stuff. I I feel like like King Kong, King Kong is still relevant now because like just last year you had the Godzilla versus Kong movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I as much as I love Frankenstein, I don't feel like Frankenstein is as relevant now. Yeah. I may love that movie more. Well, it's, it probably isn't relevant to the audience, you know, but people like us, it's very relevant. <laughs> I guess we're a dying well, yeah, breed. I'm talking about like mainstream. Yeah. Yeah. Kong is still going. Yeah. True. Yeah. The last King Kong movie was last year. Yeah. Oh, they're going to be making more, I think. Oh, I think- yeah, well, I mean, I mean the, the last one to date was last year. There's going to be a ton more. Right. I think it's one of those properties that's never really going to go away. No. Yeah, and I think about it, it's like, you know, from 1933 to now, I mean, it's probably one of the longest characters going, really, as far as film history goes. Yeah, definitely is. Everything else died out. Yeah, sadly. If they make a Kong film in 11 years, that means Kong films have been going for over a hundred years. Well, there's a whole new audience to reach, and let's face it, the special effects are. I mean, I mean, my favorite fight scene ever is in the new King Kong versus Godzilla when they're on that aircraft carrier. That is just like massive balls for me. Well, I loved it. Though. The effects finally caught up to what they want to do. Yeah, and let's face it, Kong was always meant to be a spectacle. Yeah. So yeah, um, in that. I'm- yeah, I mean, Kong, you can actually give ex- expression to. Godzilla is really hard to give him expression. Yeah. I love it. Don't get me wrong, but Kong, because you know, at the end of the day, I mean, apes are more, you know, aren't we derived from apes anyway? So it's like, so we can actually, you know, see more of an emotional side and paint our own emotions onto um, an ape, really, than we can probably a lizard. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yes, what we'll get to is out of both films, would you recommend one or the other, or would you recommend both? Starting with you, Vic. I would recommend both, especially I would use the second one as the companion to the 1933 version or back, back and forth, because they're so complementary of each other. I mean, and and it, it's almost I just love where he picks up in the 2005 and does not 
disrespect the 1933 version at all. And for 1933, it was brilliant. It had everything. I mean, it was great for the audiences. I can only imagine in 1933 going and being wowed by something like that that you've never seen. You know, I mean, so, yeah, it still does it for me. It's really nostalgic for me, too. Brings back lots of good memories, you know, with my mom, you know, hanging out with her. And and this 2005 one, it's just excellent. There's just, there's not, I can't say anything bad about it. I, 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 could, I can't think of anything bad to say about either of them. Definitely five King Kongs all the way around. Five monkeys. <laughs> and what about yourself, Joe? I give both of them five giant apes too, because I, I, I can't, like, I really can't choose between them because while they're both telling the same story, uh, they're really not the same movie because like there's, it's, it's apples and oranges. Like I love both of them. Like I can't really, like, obviously I love the 33 version. I, I love films from that era. Um, but there's the 2005 version is pretty damn perfect on its own too so i i really like i don't want I, I don't want to choose don't make me choose i like both of them like you different moods two stories told in different ways the characters are are, are portrayed differently um just watch them both enjoy them both maybe yeah, you don't just don't watch overthink them back it to back. yeah just maybe don't you don't have to watch it. them both in the same week like i did but or like vicky and, and keith probably did but I, I think there's room in uh, I think there's room for both of them and for both of them to be considered classics. I mean, like I said, when we when we started this review, King Kong changed cinema without yes. King Kong. A lot of what we have today wouldn't exist because Cooper took a chance and RKO gave him a chance. So let's just be thankful for that in general. I mean, personally, I can't choose one or the other. I love the original. I don't think anything can replace it. And I think that Peter Jackson showed us what to do if you're going to remake something and what, what the proper way of doing it is. You know, that you, it's a love letter. You know, you, you, know, you, you, incur, you can take what you have and, and maybe the special effects and embrace the special effects and make them better. But you need to keep the heart of your story there and keep the love and the emotions and the feeling that you get from the original. And, you know, and it's not about making it yours. It's about enhancing what's already there. And I think that's probably what makes this fantastic. And I can't choose one or the other because, yeah, I just can't. I think it's one of those classic cases where they kind of stand side by side triumphantly next to each other which is kind of weird because they don't, <laughs> which we'll probably see within season six of plenty of our remakes, remakes where this is not going to happen. No. <laughs> well, I guess this brings us to the end of the Literary Elections podcast. Um, we start season six um, next month. We'll be doing our make remake of Batman, the Tim Burton film from 1989, and Batman Begins, the Chris Nolan film. And of course, next week we'll be covering our end of the 80s. We'll be covering Motel Hell and American Gothic, starring Ivan Carlo and Rod Steiger. 
And of course, we'll be carrying on Dark Shadows at that. And of course, we'll start season six with Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, the book by Henry Farrell, and the 1964 film starring Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. So for now, it's good night for myself and good night, Vix. Good night, guys. Good night, Joe. Good night, everyone. And we'll see you next week for Motel Health. And-